0: You're listening to episode 47 of the Secret Origins Podcast, with stories of Pharaoh Lad, Karate Kid, and Chemical King. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this episode is all about dead people. Now, you're probably thinking I screwed up the order and went back to the Dead Man Specter issue. Not at all. The heroes we're spotlighting this time are all members of the Legion of Superheroes who died to make the future a better place. And what better way to honor this Legion Memorial episode than with three veteran members of the Legion of Super Bloggers? My first guest, when he's not blogging about the Legion, runs the Blue Beetle blog, Court Industries. He also happened to be the second guest ever to appear on the Secret Origins podcast, which is why I'm thrilled to have him back one more time. Please welcome Mr. Tim Wallace. How are you doing?
1: I am doing great, Ryan. Thanks for having me back for the fourth time.
0: It's so good to have you back. I'm so glad that we can arrange this. We have talked about Blue Beetle, we've talked about Jonah Hex, we've talked about Fire, but we haven't yet talked about the Legion of Superheroes. And I definitely want to hear your story with the Legion. But before we can get to that, we need to provide some context for any new listener that might be checking out the show for the first time. Maybe a dedicated reader of the Legion of Super Bloggers site has never heard of this podcast until now. Which, If that's the case, then Russell isn't doing a good enough job cross-promoting these episodes. (laughs) Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series, and as I mentioned a year ago, nine of those stories feature the Legion of Superheroes in some way, and three of those nine, a full third, are right here in this issue. Tim, you're part of the Legion of Superbloggers, and that should tell us something about your level of fandom. When and how did you become a lover of the Legion?
1: Russell Burbage made me do it. <laughs> um, I've been, honestly, I've been aware of the Legion probably as long as I've read comic books. Um, you you kind of can't be a, a DC Comics fan or a Superman fan without at least knowing a little bit about them. So up until uh, with the last few years, um, my experience with them has has really been Justice League Unlimited, the uh, Superboy cartoon, Smallville, the... Uh, legion and uh i'm sorry the uh justice league justice society legion crossover um stories but it really was uh when russell wanted to create the legion of super bloggers and he reached out and asked if i was interested and i i acknowledged you know hey i am not the biggest legion aficionado i kind of know of them but i'd be happy to kind of give a an outsiders or a or a newbie perspective to it and uh he absolutely loved the idea and i've uh I've, most of what I've contributed to the blog has been our, uh, some of our roundtable discussions of Silver Age stories, mm-hmm. um, and a few of the uh, periphery stories, like that uh, Legion JSA JLA crossover, the, the first appearance of Time Trapper in a Wonder Woman comic, <laughs> um, Time Trapper's second appearance in a Super Friends comic. So uh, I've <laughs> I've picked up some of the odds and ends, but uh, it's been fun.
0: That's not a bad place to be. Yeah. So why Pharaoh Lad, of all characters? For listeners, that's the first origin story that we're going to spotlight, Pharaoh Lad. Why did you want this guy?
1: Uh, You know what? It actually is because of Final Night. Okay. When Final Night came out, again, that's when I more or less my knowledge of the the Legion was very periphery. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading Final Night and kind of questioning uh, a couple friends at the time like, you know, who are these Legion guys and and why is this one guy like obsessed with with just killing himself in <laughs> in the sun eater? And uh it was, you know, he's got to fulfill his destiny. So uh, I was like, "Wow, that's kind of that's kind of cool. Like he's willing to sacrifice himself. Like he knows it's going to happen. That's that's kind of awesome." So it kind of kind of planted that seed in my head that you know this is actually a really really heroic character.
0: Cool, yeah. I, and it didn't even dawn on me until sort of recently, just doing the prep for this, that that actually where I would have first discovered him too was Final Night, uh, and that sort of segues into the character's publication history, and the pub history for Feral Lad is refreshingly short i gotta be honest (laughs) not that i don't love the research part of this podcast because it means reading comics that i might not otherwise even glance at but it can be exhausting tracing the life of a character that's been in constant publication for six decades every episode pharaoh lad debuted in adventure comics issue 346 published in may of 1966 he would not survive that calendar year His appearances continued in Adventure Comics 347, 350, 351, 352, and 353, where he died in, as you alluded to, fighting the Sun Eater. However, that didn't stop him from appearing in flashbacks in issues 354 and as a ghost in 357. In the 1980s, Ferulat appeared again in flashback in two issues of the Legion of Superheroes Baxter series. I know that he came back to life in the Five Years Later Legion series as a clone or something, and I know that a different version of the character calling himself Pharaoh popped up in the 20th century during the Final Night event that you mentioned, which was covered, by the way, on episode 250 of The Lantern cast with Chad Bokelman and Mark Marble. And I know that because I was on that episode. <laughs> But I don't really know much about that version of Fairlad. Uh You mentioned that that's sort of like what what got you into the character. Did you follow him from there? Or did you know much more about his experiences in the twentieth century?
1: Honestly, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, as interesting as I found him, I found the whole history of the Legion and the uh, the sheer scope of it kind of daunting, and it kind of it kind of. Uh, it kind of scared me off for a little while there but easing in now with uh with the silver age stories and working my way up I'm, I'm actually really kind of starting to appreciate it and get into it
0: i agree with you again like i mean looking at the whole scope of that, that was one of the reasons why i didn't want to get into them for the longest time and just reading some other series and through doing this podcast and and seeing these adventures i've started to chip away at it and i found myself really really enjoying this mythology uh, there was one other note about the character Feral Lad that I learned from the Legion of Super Bloggers Who's Who entry, and that's according to Jim Shooter, who created the character, Ferro Lad was supposed to be the first black Legionnaire, but Mort Weisinger, who was editing the book at the time, wouldn't allow it. So Shooter decided to kill Feral Lad <laughs> instead, which seems like an odd response. <laughs> I mean, I, I've heard. You know, once you go black, you'll never go back. But, oh, if, this, is, this is if you can't have black, you die? Like, what? Okay. Uh, how to. Do, I, I don't understand Jim Shooter's logic in, in doing this.
1: I don't know that I understood the logic, but I think without that decision, he might not be as interesting a character as he is now.
0: That's true. That's true. I mean, the character is known for his sacrifice and for dying so early on. But the other thing about that story sadly, it sort of exists kind of as a microcosm for the way DC has... they were really pretty slow getting into the diversity game for their characters, because I was looking it up, and Feral Lad's first appearance was 346. The issue before that, Adventure Comics 345, was published on the exact same day as Fantastic Four issue 52, which introduced the Black Panther. Wow. So... Ah... Mort, 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 um, <laughs> and there's also that story. I think Kyle Benning and I talked about it way back on episode eight, maybe when we talked about Shadowlass. That that she at one point maybe was supposed to have been a black character, right? Um, but they just decided, well, they they can't do that. They were they weren't ready for that, so they made her blue instead. Because that's <laughs> okay. Anyway, lots of craziness about this character, and I'm really excited to talk about his story and his origin. But before we get to that, listeners, we are going to take a short promo break. We will be back in a minute with the origin of Pharaoh Lad, so stick around.
2: To tell you the story of Green Lantern is to tell you the story of the birth of a universe. The origins of DC as a whole.
0: It's a magic emerald meteor from space in the 1940s. It's the establishment of the JSA. It's the birth of the Silver Age.
2: It's the introduction of a universal police force. It's the formation of the JLA. It's the
0: emergence of the multiverse.
2: It's a crisis in both space and time.
0: It's an emerald dawn.
2: And it's an emerald twilight. It's the
0: brightest day. And the blackest night. And the Lantern cast covers all of this and everything in between. We're Green Lantern's greatest advocates and fiercest critics. We've been fans for years, and it's the reason we're self-proclaimed Lanternologists.
2: So find us on iTunes and Stitcher and give us a listen, because the history of Green Lantern really is the history of the DC Universe. And we've got the interviews, commentaries, reviews, and more to back it up.
3: Much too late, ah, oh, but sooner or later, it comes down to fate. I might as well be the one. Well, they showed you a statue, told you to pray. They built you a temple and locked you away. Ah, oh, but they never told you the price that you pay for things that you might have done. Well, only the good die. I'd be laughing a bit too loud, oh, but I never heard no one So come on, Virginia, show me a sign Send up a signal, I'll throw you the line Stained glass curtain you're hiding behind never lets in the sun, darling, only the good die
0: Secret Origins 47 has a February 1990 cover date, the first issue in the series to feature a 1990 date. However, the actual on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, was December 19th, 1989, just two months and 25 days after my eighth birthday, which doesn't hold any significance whatsoever. The issue cost $1.75, it was 48 pages, Mark Wade edited the issue, and the cover was penciled by Dave Cockrum with inks by Eric Shanower. Said cover depicts the three Legionnaires featured in this issue as giant statues on a pedestal looming over a crowd of spectators. What do you think of this cover, Tim?
1: I kind of like it. There, there's a, quite an impact, even if some of the uh, anatomy looks a little off. There's mm-hmm. something, something kind of funny. I, I think, I think it's an attempted perspective, but uh, Ferulette in particular, his, uh, his shoulders look, uh, look just a little confusing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do kind of like the idea that they're there as statues. It looks like a lot of the Legion and a few people I don't recognize in the crowd. I was actually trying to pick them all out earlier, but I know I can see uh, Monel, I think, and. Uh, Shadowlass, a few others, a few others here and there, but there's like a little kid in a Shazam shirt or something that I'm not quite sure who he's supposed to be. But um, that's kind of straying away. Sorry. No, um,
0: no, I get, I get to use my thunder sound effect again. <laughs> I, I like it, and it's it's one of those things. Like, I mean, when you point to it, like, it's like, yeah. If you really scrutinize the anatomy and the musculature, particularly a feral lad, it might be a little bit wonky. I don't really like the way Cochram draws his helmet. I don't like the fact that you can't see any sort of eyeball or pupil or iris in there. I wish you could. But right. I think if you just take it at a glance, it's a striking cover. Um, I do like being able to just kind of survey the crowd and recognize that, yeah, those are Legionnaires. Like, you know, that's not just a random crowd. Like, they all have the costumes of the members. You can You can probably identify like 90% of the people there. Uh, The other thing that is kind of interesting about it is, for being a memorial, you would think that their statues would be the colorless thing, and the people there would be in color, and it's reversed here. The crowd is all sort of washed out, just in like a gray tone as as they're in the background, but the characters are in color, the statue characters, you know, the dead legionnaires. Right. But now you're using logic. (laughs)
1: who wants to look at a cover of uh, of monotoned uh, characters color up the statues that's how they did it in ancient uh, Egypt, right?
0: Yeah, that's true (laughs) and probably a statue that large of Karate Kid would not be able to balance in that pose (laughs) that's
1: a good point he
0: would fall over all the time
1: he actually almost looks like he might be uh, tipping right now
0: (laughs) Timberwolf, get out of the way All right, Tim, are you ready to tell us the origin of Pharaoh Lad? I
1: am. It is, uh, we're looking at a story called In Memory Yet Green, uh, written by Mike Barr, penciled by Kurt Swan, and inked by Mark Badger. It opens with a giant spaceship uh, hurtling towards a planet, blasting uh, a magnetic beam. While inside the ship, Ferrolad is trapped. He's in his iron form, and he's stuck inside Magnon's magnetic beams. But just when Magnon thinks he's got Farolad beat, Feralad slips out, reminding him that he can change his body makeup at will. So the magnets no longer hold him. But as soon as the guards rush into the room, Farolad switches back to uh, iron mode and repels them with ease. Taking off his mask, he grabs the girl, gives her a kiss, and the crowd applauds. It turns out the whole time we've been watching a hollow film called Pharaoh Lad 7, Will of Iron. Uh, three children, in particular, have just seen this motion picture, and they're ready for more. So they go off to rent another Pharaoh Lad holo to take home. Myla, the little girl, chooses Farolad the True Story, one that she's never seen before, and after some debate with her brother and their friend, their mother says that they should watch hers first. Uh, The film opens, Farolad the True Story, a documentary narrated by former Hollow star Louisa Caramonte, mother of Andrew Nolan, Farolad. She wants the world to know his true story. The E. Hollywood true story. <laughs> <laughs> she, she fills in how she met Interplanet Minds heir, Andrew Douglas Nolan, got married, got pregnant, and had twins, Andrew and Douglas. It was a near-perfect life until the twins were born horribly disfigured. Soon after they were born, Nolan left and in a weird kind of throwaway line is killed off, based on the panel, presumably in some sort of high-speed spaceship accident. Um, she raises the boys alone, using her wealth to repair their bodies, but their faces can't be fixed. Instead, they hide them like little men in the iron masks, and as they grow, Andrew becomes more outgoing, while Douglas is more withdrawn. But even masks and teen angst don't stop them from having a decent life, until the day the automated lawn servants revolt. Just kidding, it was a robot lawnmower that short-circuited and nearly killed Andrew. Andrew. But suddenly, he discovered the ability to turn his skin into flexible iron. With his new power revealed, Andrew runs away from home to join the Legion of Superheroes as Pharaoh Lad, and quickly finds himself thrown into battle during the Kund Invasion of Earth. Uh, His mom doesn't like the decision at all, slapping him on sight when he comes home. Uh, Not really a, a victory welcome, I'd say. But with the help of Douglas, she comes to understand and even gets a second boost to her career as she's now known as the mother of Pharaoh Lad. Turns out it's a short-lived celebration as Pharaoh sacrifices himself, saving the universe from the Sun Eater. Douglas begins to withdraw into a depression-induced seclusion until Brainiac 5 gets called in to help him with something akin to assisted suicide. Brainiac 5 puts him in some sort of permanent trip into the dream world, uh, leaving Louisa alone, now having lost both of her sons. Uh, With that, the authorized Pharaoh Lad film ends with Louisa telling us she's done this to keep her son's memory alive. And with that, the boys go out to play while Mila and her mother decide they want to watch the documentary one more time.
0: All right, thank you very much. Cool. Sure. What did you think about this story?
1: I liked it. Going into it, I had the who's who entry, and, and my minimal expertise just, just referencing Final Night. And it really does kind of sell you on the idea that this kid... You know sort of sort of an outcast, disfigured face, living uh, living a decent but somewhat secluded life, discovers that he has this power. he's going to run out and he's going to help save the world. and he does, but he dies in the process. Mm-hmm. it's It's a beautiful story of heroism and sacrifice. It's got some weird twists, though, like the weird throwaway with uh, Dad dying in, <laughs> in the high-speed accident and uh, the brother uh, getting assisted suicide from Brainiac 5, which kind of threw me off, although I know that that's been sort of retconned to a different outcome, just researching, but still a, a very interesting story, but with, with some kind of bizarre twists in it.
0: I liked this. I, I, I loved the story, actually. I thought it was terrific. And, I mean, Mike Barr is an outstanding writer. He's one of my favorite writers, and he really redeemed himself with this one because the last story that he contributed to Secret Origins was the first Clayface story, and I hated Uh. that one. (laughs) Now, a lot of that was because I didn't like Keith Gibbons' art, but I also didn't think the story was all that well-constructed. So Mike Barr, I, I think, knocked it out of the park with this one. There are a few things that... I I, I might kind of tweak or or criticize, but really not that much. And as for the art, Kurt Swan, I think, does a terrific job with this. Now he's got another inker who I think is helping him along. But I didn't even realize it until now. But Kurt Swan drew three out of the last four stories in Secret Origins that I've reviewed. Because prior to this issue, back in 46... Kurt Swan drew two of the three stories in that, the origin of the Legion Clubhouse and the origin of the JLA's Secret Sanctuary. So he's done three stories out of of four in two consecutive issues. And they're all with different inkers, and those inkers all have a very different effect on the art. If you didn't know better, you'd almost, I think, be hard-pressed to even identify that this is the same penciler. But still, for doing that workload in that time that's pretty outstanding I think absolutely and yeah I do like the story I I love the opening of it it's like right from the beginning I was reading this I was like wow this is a really action-packed intense opening I was like this is like something out of an action adventure superhero movie and then you know get to (laughs) bottom of page three it's like oh this is an action adventure superhero movie (laughs) just happens to be in the 30th century but yeah, I love that, and of course the character, the actor playing Lad takes off his helmet to reveal I'm sure it's supposed to be a you know beautiful Hollywood leading man face, he kisses the girl, which is of course different than what he would normally do because do, in the, in the original comics, did they ever show Lad without his helmet, without the mask?
1: I honestly don't know.
0: Yeah, they keep referencing that he's horribly disfigured, but there's no hint of what he and his brother look like in this story and I kind of wonder if they would have shown that. And again, I wonder if that was a thing where getting back to the history, if if they were intentionally keeping his face covered, because maybe there was going to be a re- re- dramatic reveal that, oh, he's not a white Caucasian male. but
1: In the context of this story, that could cause some problems for the relationship his mother had with his father.
0: <laughs> That's true. <laughs> could have been. And, yeah, his father's death scene, which it looks like he just crashed his ship into an asteroid or a <laughs> meteoroid or somewhere in space. Yeah. There's nothing to suggest this in the art or the dialogue, like the word balloons, but for some reason I just thought, of, I looked at that and thought, maybe, Maybe like a drunk driving accident or a drunk flying accident, something. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, you know, he, he left her because he couldn't stand their ugly children, which, <laughs> who hasn't been there? <laughs> Thinking about the three kids sort of at the heart of the story, like watching the vids... Were we supposed to get an Eddie Haskell vibe off of uh, Ordo, the blue skin kit?
1: <laughs> I don't know if we were supposed to, but I definitely got it,
0: too. Okay, yeah, because the first thing you know, he's calling Milo a little squirt, and then as soon as he walks in, he's like, Hello, Mrs. Kramer. My, you're looking lovely today. I was like, mm, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's exactly who he's supposed to be.
1: Yeah, and then at the at the end, isn't there also a, uh, Your cookies were delicious or
0: something? <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. There's something <laughs> like that. And it's, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh no, he's yeah, he's totally. That's totally what they were going for, I'm sure. Even the name Ordo sounds kind of like <laughs> Eddie or something. Yeah. You mentioned some of the odd twists, like obviously the, the downplayed death of the father and the uh the, the the whole thing with his brother Douglas kind of going into this induced coma and this dream state. It's, I don't know what to make of that because I haven't read the original saga. I don't know if that came up. I think that might have been something that showed up in the like the the ghost of Pharaoh ladder story or something it was like from 357 adventure 357 maybe
1: that might yeah it sounds like it might be right yeah. yeah i mean i mean i'm still a little behind you know mm-hmm. i've got i've got the 60s to get through and uh <laughs> <the> <laughs> but yeah that sounds i think that does sound about right yeah.
0: if one of our listeners knows the quick answer like can summarize that story give us the quick beats for that let me know
1: Just for a second while we're thinking about that, now, I don't know if you read it the same way I did, but I kept coming to the assisted suicide thing because he he withdraws from everything, Mm -hmm. uh, deeply into his own private world, and then Brainiac 5 figures out a way to put him into an ideal world of his dreams, but that last, the top panel on the last page of the story, Brainiac 5 and the mother are walking away from an empty table. Now, the previous page, Douglas is laying on the table. They're now walking away from an empty table. With the uh, Brainiac Five found a way to let Douglas enter the world of his dreams forever, and then the mother makes the comment, "I had lost both of my sons." That's where I keep I kept reading that as as suicide. But skimming over some other articles before we recorded, I did see something that said like he wasn't really dead. He was <laughs> he was sent to like a dream world, and they brought him back at some later point. But, I mean, reading that, I sure came off with, he's gone. Because why else do you leave the empty table?
0: It's weird, yeah. I mean, I I kind of got the same idea as you. I mean, whether he I mean, the the empty table certainly seems like he's physically dead and gone, like he's no longer there. But uh, maybe the impression is just supposed to be that like he's basically transferred his mind or his consciousness to another realm, maybe where he can be with his brother or something. I I don't know. But I I certainly I get what you're thinking. Like, it does kind of give me that same vibe, like. Douglas has decided that he doesn't want to live on this earth without his brother. That kind of, that does kind of come to one of my other points about which, like I said, I was reading this and I was enjoying the hell out of this story, and at the end of it I thought, this is almost the ideal Secret origin story. This is almost the one I've been looking for since the beginning of this podcast, because it gives me the history in a way that's not just carbon copying the original first appearance it gives me something new in a new detail or a new voice a framing device that makes sense as a mechanism for revisiting the origin which is great but in this particular story's case i think it's a little bit too short you know it's only a 12 page story i wish this could have been a f- full blown issue uh, it glosses over too many things like Lad first joining the Legion and everything kind of leading up to his death. Um, I, I think those are really important details. And, you know, I, I always come to the, the question that I, I always try to ask after I read one of these origin stories is, does this make me want to read more Feralad or Legion of Superhero stories? And even though I really enjoyed this particular story... I would almost say no, it doesn't because I'm not tempted to read more feral led stories because I know he's dead. I mean at least at the point where this story ends, he's no longer in the picture. there's no clue that he might show up later as a clone or in the twentieth century and final night. That's not evident, and also the legion itself is such a a small part of this story they're they're almost sidelined, so it doesn't really entice me to want to read more legion stories so so much about this story is really really great but it falls short in these few little instances where it doesn't make me want to read more and i just think like they gloss over too many things and if this could have been a 18 page story we could have gotten more of his time you know joining the legion during the Kund invasion more of the events leading up to his sacrifice and definitely the whole thing with his brother and the aftermath there
1: yeah, and actually, it's kind of funny you point those pieces out. In a way, reading it, it kind of made me think that this is probably a, a good way for, for for me to make this appearance, because there are similarities in what you said to two of the other stories you and I covered. The uh, Jonah Hex story, mm-hmm. the ability to, to throw you in, set up that framework, give you the origin, and end it with the character's death, and leave you right there. It's it's completely self-contained. No. And then with the fire story, that just almost throw away. And then she joined the Justice League International. The end. Mm-hmm. So, so you get that aspect with the Legion here and the self-contained story. So it, we've come full circle. I can go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, piggybacking on top of that. If you go back to your first one on the Blue Beetle episode, you know, there were two different Blue Beetles. There was Ted Cord, but also Dan Garrett, and Dan Garrett died in that story, too. So three out of the five story characters that we've done the origins for, you know, 60% of the characters you've been covering have been dead characters. Man,
1: when you put it that way.
0: <laughs> you, you've become a specialist in this. Area. I have. Didn't even think about that. And actually, and now that I think about this, getting back to that issue of, you know, his sacrifice, his death fighting the Sun Eater is just really relegated to one kind of tiny panel in this. I wonder if they kind of minimized it because of the post-crisis negation of Superman, or, or Superboy, I should say, and his involvement. Because the story goes, if you look at the original one, is that Superman was going to sacrifice himself flying this bomb into the Sun Eater, and Pharaoh Boy punched Superman out of the way, like basically knocked it out and took it upon himself to do it, thinking that Superman was more important. Well, cut to the story Final Night, that we've referenced several times, the same thing was happening. Superman was going to pilot this suicide mission to destroy the Sun Eater in our time, our time being like 1998, but Pharaoh took the bomb, or took the suicide mission himself, and flew it into the sun, thinking he was going to be the hero, thinking that was his destiny. But of course, right. Hal Jordan stepped in and saved him, and it ended up being Hal that sacrificed himself there. I wonder if, because they needed to take Superboy out of the equation, they couldn't, like maybe Mike Barr didn't want to rewrite that scene without Superboy, so they just kind of minimized it. Or it could have just been the page constraints, you know, he only had 12 pages. so Yeah. It's still a very enjoyable story, uh, I like this character. I mean, I, I I like him a lot. And he's funny, like, because he lived so short, you know, I hardly ever see him in any of the Legion stories that I've read or even any of the group shots. I like the costume design. It's different. I really like the mask. Again, I didn't like the way Cockrum draws it on the cover, but I like the way Swan and Badger draw in this issue. I, I think he's a cool character with, with some potential. I... I I wish they could have done something. I I would have been very curious if, you know, in another world or if they ever rebooted Legion another time for the four boot or the five boot. (laughs) uh, If they had done something with him and actually made him a a black character, you know, gives more diversity other than Invisible Kid 2. Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But that's all I got. I, I like the story. I like the setup of it, of it being a documentary a hollow vid narrated by this mother who has got some baggage. Um, and I like, of course, that you know the boys are sort of too immature. They don't get it, the nuance of it. They just want to watch their action movies. But Mila and her mother really sort of pick up on the deeper meanings of, of what this guy's story was. I think that's really fascinating. Right. And, a, and a strong emotional beat to end this story on. Absolutely. So. Any final thoughts for you as far as the story is concerned? Just one
1: little thing, and it's not exactly story related, but Russell, little Russell Burbage, <laughs> uh, pointed it out to me, and I thought it was worth mentioning. The title of the story, the, uh, In Memory Yet Green, mm-hmm. is actually a, uh, a reference to a poem by Isaac Asimov. So I looked it up, mm-hmm. and it, it is uh, In Memory Yet Green, In Joy Still Felt, the scenes of life rise sharply into view. We triumph, life's disasters are undealt, and while all else is old, the world is new.
0: Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Nice nice little thematic beat. Sense of death, but life moving on through these kids. Hmm. I like it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I I thought of that. I remember looking at the title and thinking... I'm sure that's a quote for, I mean, it's in quotation marks. It seems like a line from something, but I didn't think to look it up. So good on Russell for picking that up, and uh, thank you for sharing that one. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, people, if you want to know more about Pharaoh Lad, well, you're in luck because there is a collection of his appearances Legion of Superheroes The Life and Death of Pharaoh Lad came out a couple of years ago and it collects his six appearances and that one ghost appearance after he died you can pick that up if you can find it Uh, otherwise all of his appearances back in adventure comics when he was still alive and kicking have been collected either in the legion archives volumes five and six or showcase presents the legion of superheroes volumes two and three any other stories or appearances that you can think of tim
1: Honestly, I think you almost have to read the Sun Eater Saga, and then I think it's worth going back and taking a look at how a variation of that story does play out in Final Night. I know we've, we've talked about both, because there's not much else to talk about. <laughs> but I think it is worth worth taking a look at both of those stories and the, uh, the slight divergence in the outcome.
0: Yeah, and if you can find any of those uh, Legion appearances or Legion comics from the late 90s, when the team was stuck on the 20th century... I'd uh, be very interested to see how the character develops in that series, so just because you're here in Legion, I mean, you've talked a little bit how you're sort of the peripheral Legion of Super Bloggers member. You kind of catch some of those. What are some of your favorite stories? You know, not necessarily specific to Pharaoh Lad, but what Legion stories do you love that you have discovered? You know, just since you've been a part, just since, as you say, Russell dragged you into this.
1: <laughs> Russell made me do it. Um, <laughs>
0: honestly,
1: I've really, really enjoyed the Silver Age stuff. The origins and the foundations of the team and the characters—it's—it's yep. it's amazing, and it's that—it's that simple, absolutely enjoyable period in in comics, and it, I think it carries over a lot of them. But using that as my uh, as my introduction to the core of the book has, has just been a total blast. As as cheesy as some of that stuff is, it is so much fun to read. Very cool. And they love labeling everything. That's the one thing that was missing in here was was labels on everything, but like the Legion Clubhouse, and this this is Saturn Girl's chair, and this is, you know, (laughs) (laughs)
3: Lightning
1: Lad's coffee mug.
0: (laughs) I'd love to see those. (laughs) Well, Tim, thank you one more time for being part of the Secret Origins podcast. It was great to have you back again. Where else, other than the Legion of Super Bloggers, can people find you if they want to hear more from you?
1: If they want to hear me, there's some, <laughs> there's some, <laughs> there's an appearance over on a Shag's Justice League Bwahaha podcast. Um, and I'm, I think we've already Shag and I talked about doing another one uh, in the future, so that's cool. And a couple appearances on Rob Kelly's uh, Film and Water. I did just record uh, a couple episodes recently with Feathers and Foes, the Birds of Prey podcast, talking about Blue Beetle's appearance there, and that actually led into uh, a conversation with Ashford, the host, and another appearance on his uh, Doctor Who podcast, Straight Out of Gallifrey. So that's been fun. But then you can always find me at Court Industries at blogspot.com, uh, my phantom blog, the uh, Phantom Skull Cave at Blogspot, and my uh, occasional contributions over at uh, Legion of Superbloggers.
0: Well, thank you very much again, you know, like I mentioned up at the top, you were the second guest to ever be on this podcast and I knew I had to have you one more time. This has been a very fun journey and I I was delighted, you know, I was happy to be your first podcast appearance to sort of usher you into this and now now you're stepping out. You're appearing on everybody's shows you know? I am. <laughs> I'm a little bit jealous. I I feel a little bit protective and, and but but I'm also very I, happy.
1: <laughs> I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> right. okay listeners that was just the first part of our legion memorial episode we're going to take another promotional break but when we come back dr Ange is going to challenge me to a one-on-one death match over the origin of karate kid you do not want to miss that
1: don't call them babes definitely don't call them broads but can we call them birds Welcome to Feathers and Foes, a Birds
3: of Prey podcast where we are celebrating the tales of the Femme Fatales. Superman flies above you, Aquaman rules below you, but the birds stand with you.
1: Feathers and Foes, I'm your host Ashford, and in the studio with me is... Hello. Black Canary? Wait a minute, what did you do with Leah and Mark?
4: Did you just call me a broad?
1: No, I said don't call them babes, don't call them broads.
4: So, you're saying I'm not a babe?
1: No, yes. I don't know. I, I don't see you as some object. I see you as a well-rounded character with her own wants, desires, and agency.
4: Stop saying buzzwords, hoping to gain a female audience.
1: Canary, how dare you question my sincerity?
4: That's Black Canary to you. Do you want me to plug your show or not?
2: Please plug my show, Miss Canary. You
4: can contact Ashford, Leah, or Mark on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at FeathersandFoes. You can also email them on the website feathersandfoes.libsen.com. In addition to all of this, you may subscribe to them on iTunes. Just go to the search option and type Feathers and Foes. Try to be best,
3: cause you're only a, man, and a man's got to learn to take Try to believe, oh, the
0: We're back for another dead Legionnaire with another member of the Legion of Superbloggers. From the Supergirl blog to his Chronicles of the Five Years Later Legion, please welcome Dr. Ange back to the show. How are you, Ange? I'm doing well.
2: Thanks for asking me to come on. I'm a big Legion fan, and so uh, I've been looking forward to doing this.
0: That's why I had to have you for one more story, for one more appearance. The last time that we talked was actually in person uh, at Boston Comic-Con. And once again, I want to thank you very much for the comics you snagged for me. That was awesome. And I have already talked about my meeting with Mark Wade at the con and learning some secrets behind the Secret Origin series. But you hinted to me that you had a pretty cool talk with him, too. What was that like?
2: Yeah, you know, um, I've met him a couple of times before and I'm, you know, he's totally one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. Um, But right now on the Legion of Superbloggers blog, I'm actually reviewing his run, the Mm 3-boot. And, you know, every Friday they're up and I tweet, you know, my latest review and I always at Mark Wade because, you know, just in case. And so at Boston, when I went up to his table, I said, hey, I just wanted to let you know um, I've been reviewing your 3-boot over on a Legion site Um, And I've been really enjoying it. And he looked at me and he, he said, you're that guy? I love those reviews. And I was like, oh my, you know, it's like all of a sudden you start to tremble, right? Like, oh my God, Mark Wade reads my stuff, which was just absolutely tremendous. And then we had to talk about his three boot a little bit, uh, including some questions that people had put on the blog uh, that they wanted me to ask. So, you know, I kind of told him that I thought it was an underappreciated run and that he had what I would describe as a monumental task of trying to bring in new Legion readers with a new book and satisfy the rabid continuity loving old Legion readers, which I think he said made it difficult for him and put a lot of editorial pressure on him, where editors were saying he needed to write it a certain way to satisfy the old readers, and he was trying to move forward.
0: I definitely imagine that pressure, and I remember those were the first Legion books I ever read, and I really enjoyed it, and I think I I stuck with it based on the strength of his writing and some of the storytelling that he was doing with Barry Kitson, but... Once it was over it didn't I wasn't ready to jump and go back and find old Legion books. I felt like just like that was I, I was comfortable with that more because of his, his strengths as a writer. And it took me like I've said, it took me a while. It took me really until this podcast when I had to force myself to do some more deep diving into the Legion and that's when I really started to like these characters a lot more. It is very, very cool that he has been reading your reviews. That is outstanding. That is so so cool. I am I am envious of that. I'm jealous of that. Um, you are here to help me cover the origin of Ralph Macchio, the Karate Kid. Oh, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. wait, wait sorry, sorry. The, other, the other Karate Kid. Um, but before we get to that, can you tell our listeners about your background with the Legion of Superheroes in general? Uh, sure.
2: You know, I've told this story a couple of different places, but my earliest recollection of comics is down at a little beach house that my uh, parents had. And we used to go to a lot of yard sales. And <clears throat> I'm going to date myself here, but that was sort of in the you know mid to late 70s. And you would go to yard sales and people were selling their old comics. And so the first comics that I ever remember reading were in sort of the Mike Grell era Legion of Superheroes. Mm -hmm. So those came out like 1974, 1975, but I was reading them as brand new, in quotes, um, like 1978, 1979. And I must have just got a stack of them, fell in love with those characters, and have kind of followed them ever since. So um, I've really been following the Legion through the... You know, Levitt's Giffen era into the five year later runs, uh, into the three boot and beyond. They've always sort of been part of my comic book collecting, and I've always had a great appreciation for them.
0: Do you have a preferred run? I mean, I know b- prior to the three boot, you were chronicling the five years later run on the Legion of Super Bloggers website. Is that your preferred run? Do you have a an era that you think of as yours, that's your your prime era?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that if you asked me which do I think is the best run in terms of the medium of comics, I would say five years later, because that was a very mature, very intelligent, complex book that I thought was just fantastic from an artistic point of view and from a writing point of view. But if you ask me which is like my Legion, it's definitely that sort of early to uh, mid-80s Giffen-Levitt's run, sort of the Great Darkness Saga and beyond. Yeah. Like, I just think that that was gold. You know, um, Great Darkness Saga is kind of like what everybody points to, but the issues after that where, you know, you discover that Shrinking Violet was actually a Durland spy had replaced her for a while and, and, you know, reintroducing new legionnaires like Censor Girl and having Polar Boy join, like, that stuff just was Fantastic, And Levitz really was, I would say, marvelous in juggling a cast of 30-plus characters, building subplots that kind of bubbled along for years and then came to fruition. I mean, that's probably the, the prime time for me.
0: And where does Karate Kid sort of specifically fit into your Legion history or your fandom?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think that I would (laughs) probably put him at the bottom, like, (laughs) in terms of if you made me list. I think I've always had sort of a hard time sort of understanding his purpose in a team. Like, when you have... Superboy and Monel and Wildfire and Ultra Boy, and, uh, you know, why do you need Karate Kid? And even if you said, like, no, there needs to be, like, a street-level person, they have people like Shrinking Violet and, you know, Chameleon Boy and, and Invisible Kid and other people that I think serve a greater purpose, you know, um... You know, the the panel that always pops into my brain is at one point there's a character named Grimbor, who's uh, like a master jailer, who literally has put giant chains around the earth. And there's a shot in space of Karate Kid, like karate chopping this giant chain that (laughs) that Superboy can't melt with his heat vision. And I'm like, really, why are you? Why are you there? So, So he's always been sort of at the bottom, more as a conundrum than anything else.
0: Yeah, and I don't think you have the minority opinion in that uh because I remember you know long before I was a Legion fan, you know, back when I was just sort of early getting into my DC comics fandom on message boards. I always remember it felt like Karate Kid was always the punchline to a joke. Like, nobody respected this guy. And, yeah, I wasn't sure if it was just, like, a fault of the character or if it was just, you know, backlash from the Ralph Macchio Karate Kid movies that had preceded it or something like that, if that was just something where he didn't age well. But I think part of it is, you're right, like, karate seems like such kind of a a fad. That's something, like, that we knew as growing up. But, like, when you put it on the grand scale of these earth-moving, shaking characters, it's like... Why would you even need that? Why what is that? What does he add? It's it's you know, it's not the same as putting like a green arrow on the Justice League of America who can contribute something. And I always think of a line from uh the T V show Archer, the animated series, where he says karate, the Dane cook of martial arts. <laughs> yeah. So Anyway, uh, looking at this character's publication history, Karate Kid debuted in Adventure Comics issue 346, the same issue that introduced Pharaoh Lad, who we already talked about, as well as Princess Projectra and Nemesis Kid. From there, he appeared in 20 of the next 30 Legion stories appearing in Adventure Comics. After that, Karate Kid crossed over to the Legion stories and action comics, starting with issue 381 in 1969, and appeared fairly consistently for about a year. Then in 1972, he started appearing in Superboy, beginning with issue 183. Again, Karate Kid did not appear in every issue, but did pop up in roughly half of the next 40 issues. Around this time, Karate Kid got his own bi-monthly solo series beginning in March and April of 1976, That series lasted 15 issues, ending in July and August of 1978. Meanwhile, he continued to function with the rest of the Legion as the Superboy title was renamed Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. In 1984, that series became a reprint title called Tales of the Legion of Superheroes, while new adventures of the team were chronicled in the new Legion of Superheroes series. However, Karate Kid didn't last long in the new Baxter series. He died in issue four, but he still appeared in odd flashback stories after that. Uh, And you're certainly the man to ask, but did he ever appear in the five years later Legion stories?
2: Uh, No, he didn't. Um, He did appear in the Three reboot, as Mm -hmm. that was sort of a reimagining of all of those characters. And there he kind of played more of a philosopher type person that was able to sort of help other people sort of like harness their powers in a better way. Mm -hmm. And this character did come back in Countdown. Not that I'm proud that I read Countdown. (laughs) Uh, But he was sort of a time pluck character from this continuity that carried some sort of virus that was killing everybody. And I honestly don't remember how that story ended.
0: In my research looking at his history, I think the biggest thing that jumped out at me was Karate Kid got his own series.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that part of it is that when you look at when that was published, that was when karate was kind of like a fad in America, right? Like the Kung Fu show was on television and, you know, people wore high karate aftershave and, you know, everybody was Kung Fu fighting on the radio. And so I thought that they would try to uh, they probably thought they could jump on that fad. I mean, probably about the same time that Iron Fist sort of came out in Marvel. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's interesting is that that book actually takes place in the 20th century. You know, in the future, he wants to marry Princess Projectora. She's royalty. And her father says he needs to kind of go through like a challenge of character, something like that. And so sends him back to the 20th century to sort of go through this crucible to prove that he's worthy of marrying his daughter. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. It still sort of surprised me when I think about like how many Legion characters ever got their own series. Like, I know yeah. Karate Kid, I know Cosmic Boy, but was there any others?
2: Uh, not that I'm aware of. The Cosmic Boy one was a miniseries, but yeah, yeah. no, there was the Legionnaires 3, not a solo book, but just the mm-hmm. three um, founders had their own miniseries, but other than that, I don't think so.
0: All right, well, are you ready to tell our listeners the story of Karate Kid? I am ready.
2: Okay, in a story called "The Thorned Path," with script by Tom and Mary Beerbaum, pencils by Mike Parabek, inks by Paul Frick, letters by John Workman, colors by Tom McCraw, and uh, editor Mark Wade. We start at the Legion of Superheroes headquarters, where looks like sometime early on in the Legion years, based upon the costumes everybody is wearing. Uh, Bouncing Boy, Triplicate Girl, and Matter Eater Lad are lamenting missions given to them by the new Legion leader, Karate Kid. These are no small orders, Um, they're asked to track down Mordrew to seize the Persuader's axe and for Matter Eater Lad, he is supposed to infiltrate the Dark Circle and discover what their secret identities are. As usual, Matter Eater Lad makes light of everything, uh, teasing Karate Kid for his real name, calling him a hot dog, and Karate Kid seems rather irked by that and really demands that Matter Eater Lad live up to the standards of the Legion, the standards that Karate Kid carries for himself. At this point, Karate Kid Sensei, named Sensei, arrives uh, and thinks back to his first meeting with Val Armour. So we go into a flashback where we learn that Val is the son of a Japanese crime lord named Black Dragon and an American named Valentina Armour. Sensei kills Black Dragon uh, and then vows to protect Valentina and their baby son Val. Unfortunately, Valentina decides to strike out on her own and ultimately is killed by Black Dragon's uh, enemies as well as part of his mob who wants to raise Val to replace his dead father. Sensei then decides to raise Val on his own, training him in really an almost harsh way to become the pinnacle of the martial artist. Despite being labeled a half-breed because of his half-American nature by many in Japan, Val actually rises in the ranks nationally of martial artistry, uh, winning tournaments and being named a samurai at a young age. At this point, he gets a new sensei named Kashu and is made the head of security in a district within Japan. His ancestry is still sort of a sore point for many. He continues to be called a half-breed, and he's shunned by most. But his prowess is still renowned, uh, and he ends up being named the head of security for the Samurai's Council, which is the most important gathering for the Japanese government at that time. And he is commanded by Cashew to protect the shogun who is going to be there. During the council, uh, Val runs into Sensei again, and that night Val actually hears Sensei screaming outside the council walls. When he rushes to save his sensei, he realizes that this was just a diversion that would leave the shogun relatively undefended. Rushing back onto the grounds, Val enters the shogun's room and quickly dispatches several assassins, saving the man. Looking for Cashew for support and respect, unfortunately, Val uh, is found to be lacking by his new sensei. Cashew turns his back on Val says that Val has only been doing what he was trained to do, however rushing to save the Sensei led to the death of many guards within the walls, and that's blood on Val's hand. Realizing he will never be good enough, Val decides to leave the security detail uh, and strike out on his own path, ultimately joining the Legion. Leaving his memories, uh, and now back in sort of present day, Sensei approaches Val and says that while Val is now leading the Legionnaires, he isn't letting them choose their own path, he's forcing them down his own path. In essence, Val has turned into this man, Cashew, who has forced his path on others and is not appreciative of them. Lost in his thoughts, Val now realizes his error, calls Reader Lad, and cancels the Dark Circle mission with a smile, and that's the end.
0: All right, thank you very much for that. My first just kind of general thoughts, and we still have one more story in this episode to talk about, but I think this is the weakest of the three stories in this issue, but not really for any fault of this story. I think the story itself is really fine. Um, it's, it's pretty simple, It kind of, it's a weird story because he's a weird character and he feels sort of very anachronistic. This is a very, if you took out the framing device with him in the Legion, you wouldn't think that this is any sort of science fiction future story. It feels very much like a feudal samurai type of story.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, there's not one flying ship rocket belt laser pistol. This really appears to be sort of um, feudal Japan in every shape in that flashback sequence. And part of what makes me think this is weak is that there's, you know, you have a few panels at the beginning and a few panels at the end with the Legion, but you get no sense of his history with the Legion. I know that this is supposed to be an origin story, right? but you should probably get some appreciation of who he is. And he's got a couple of decent stories within his, you know, body of work. That first story with Nemesis Kid, he's branded as a traitor uh, until it is revealed that Nemesis Kid um, is actually the traitor, and there's the whole part about him courting and eventually marrying Princess Projectora, and then, you know, his death. Those are sort of like three big highlights in his career that could have been showcased here, and instead you have him defending a shogun that has no bearing on any of his other stories.
0: Mm-hmm. Had any of, I mean, that was actually one of my questions, how much of this material was new for this story, and how much had been previously told? Like, was any of this having to do with the, the cashew, the daimyo, or the shogun? Had any of this story ever been told before, or hinted at? Or was this completely an invention by the beer bombs for this story?
2: You know, I'm going to plead a little bit of ignorance here. I definitely knew about the Sensei stuff. I definitely knew about the Black Dragon stuff. Mm -hmm. But this other stuff I had never read before. Now, whether or not that was somewhere in the Legion's 50 year history that I just didn't come across, maybe. But I don't recall reading that in, you know, his Who's Who entry or anything like that. So I think this feels pretty fresh.
0: Okay. Getting back to then his his parentage and everything, like they mentioned that, you know, he's the son of this Japanese crime lord, the black dragon, and this other woman would it, do they call her a bounty hunter named Valentina Armour? Yeah, yeah,
2: at some point they're like the American bounty hunter.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think that was actually pretty that was an interesting story thread and I wonder if they ever revisited that. It looks like as he is an infant, the black dragons, sort of the disciples of his father, are trying to get him back. And the sensei takes him back and like saves him and raises him. Did that ever come back? Like when Karate Kid is an adult, like was there ever a pull that like he's the heir of this sort of ancient crime family or this group of assassins? Like,
2: yeah, there's actually um, uh, one story in the Baxter Legion's, uh book. So he's died, and his best friend um, is Timberwolf. And in Karate Kid's will. He tells Timberwolf, you have to go back to this harsh planet run by criminals where I did some training that also is where the Black Dragon sort of had some of his holdings. Uh, And in this very, very bleak world, you have to plant a seed so that like some beauty of nature will be there. So that his background is sort of commented on. I don't think he ever sort of, you know, went undercover to try to reclaim it or Mm -hmm. or anything like that. But it definitely was part of his sort of backstory, at least mentioned.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I would have liked to see something with that. As for the rest of the story, actually, one of my first questions looking at the framing device was, is this, like, can you identify, is this story set in a kind of fixed time where we see when Karate Kid was the leader of the Legion?
2: Yeah, you know, there have been timelines that have been put together, whether you look at, like, the Mayfair books or other Legion things. And so they say that in sort of whatever, year seven of the Legion, whether or not that's true anymore these days, who knows. um, But that was when he was elected. And so you definitely sort of get a sense that you're able to sort of put it in that time. And so, uh, you know, based upon Duo Damsel slash Triplicate Girls costume and his costume, that sort of beige, you know, gi... We're really talking sort of uh, adventure comics time period sort of uh, mid sixties late sixties somewhere on there
4: okay
0: that was just had me curious because I never in my reading experience I haven't seen him as the leader, but again my experience is comparatively limited
2: yeah it's before my time definitely
0: mm-hmm. uh, I <laughs> After reading the story I I mentioned to you, I went back just this morning and read Legion of Superheroes issue four, which is his death. Where it's him facing off against Nemesis Kid again. You know they have this this throwdown, and I, I mean I guess you can say he sacrifices himself nobly at the end, but for most of the fight it is pretty one sided. He gets a few punches in, but Nemesis Kid just dismantles him throughout this fight.
2: Yeah, you know, this is uh, one of my favorite fights in Legion history because, you know, Nemesis Kid's superpower is that he can manifest whatever power he needs to defeat you. So, for example, if Superboy showed up, he might turn into Kryptonite because that's what he would need to defeat you, right? And so he's taking on Karate Kid and the power that he gets to defeat him is better karate right <laughs> so it's it's not like energy blasts or an invulnerable force shield or anything like that it's better martial arts which I think is almost ironic um, <laughs> because then he's he's supposed to be the best martial artist in the world and he just gets like taken apart you know great art by Steve Lytle there's one sequence where he's getting punched in the face and, and you see one panel from Karate Kid's viewpoint and everything's blurred like yeah. you know that he's know been yeah yeah. and he stands up he knows he's dying right just from internal wounds he's like i'm not going to make it and so he then sacrifices himself blowing up um, a device that has put princess projectors world in a force field not allowing the legion to come and so by doing that he basically opens the gateway for the legion of superheroes to fight the legion of supervillains
0: and his last words to his wife are kind of I don't want to say casual, but it's sort of like, "Hey, it's been fun, babe," or something to that effect. It's like, <laughs> really? That's the last thing you're gonna to say to your wife before you die, saving her world, and I. Okay, that struck me as sort of a, a cavalier, you know, type of thing you'd see in like a, a Michael Bay movie or something.
2: Yeah, you get to keep your planet, kid. Don't forget me. <laughs> it's like really, like <laughs> you know. Uh, they sound more like roommates.
0: Uh, uh, Cue the <laughs> Aerosmith song at that moment as he flies up to blow up the force the force field generator. You know? Too um,
2: funny. Yeah. You know, well, I'll just, you know, um, if I can tack on, I'll say that the Nemesis Kid part of things, I think it was good for them to bring it back in this because, again, he was such um, an important character in Karate Kid's origin story, where, you know, those four Legionnaires get, um, they get added to the Legion because a war with the Cuns is about to happen. And all of these things seem to implicate that Karate Kid is a traitor and is helping the Cuns. And then it turns out that it's Nemesis Kid, and then Nemesis Kid basically, you know, at the end of that story, you think he's dead because he tries to apply his powers against, like, four Legionnaires at the same time, and he sort of seems to dissipate. So I'm glad they brought him back in this Legion of Supervillain story, and I feel that that was such a good antagonistic relationship that I almost wish that was part of the Secret Origin story, because you just don't get any Legion at all here.
0: Yeah, I can see it. And honestly, who would have thought somebody named Nemesis Kid would have turned out to be a villain? From a planet of alchemists, right? You
4: know.
0: (laughs) Um, Getting back to that uh, that moment, like when he Nemesis Kid, his power is just better karate. In order to kill Karate Kid, it's too bad that he didn't have like Aikido or something, because I think that's the martial arts that's built on like pacifism and redirecting somebody else's force against you. Like I think those would have just canceled each other out.
2: Yeah, they, um, they, you know, they make a point to say that Karate Kid is a master of all forms of martial arts, Mm -hmm. so um, uh, (laughs) not just karate. And, you you know, one of his claims to fame is that he defeats Superboy in hand-to-hand combat as a way to prove that he belongs on the team, which I think is ridiculous because I can't imagine Superboy used any of his powers when that happens. There's a famous panel of him, like, fireman carrying or throwing Superboy into a wall um, and again, that's a big moment, right? Because, you know, when people read this, they're like, why is he on this team? Like, you could have put that in the secret origin story as a way to say, like, he proved his worth. But right. this uh, truly seems more like an origin story and less a recap of his career. So I guess it depends upon your point
0: of view. And. I mean, I, I, as much as anybody, have been saying, I want these types of stories. I want these types of origins. I don't need an entire recap of the character's history. Uh, So in that sense, maybe that's why I enjoyed the character. And I didn't know, I I guess, I didn't know what about the character I was missing from that recap. I didn't know all of his experiences with Superboy. I didn't know the story about him and Nemesis Kid up until the moment where they fight to the death. So uh, maybe that's why I found the story fine you know just like a perfectly uh, good story again it didn't stand out it did feel kind of like this guy's a member of the legion i mean i guess we i i'm told that but it it just seemed like a strange sort of out of place story but yeah, I, it would have been cool to have a few more of those connections, uh, if possible. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the Chemical King story in this issue and the mm-hmm. Lad, right, because these are dead characters,
2: so it's not like there's any place for them to go, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're going to stay dead. They do a much better job, I think, of sort of incorporating more Legion history into this. I think that if, you know, I think this came out right as the five-year-later run was starting, yeah. like, in single issues, that I don't think that anybody would have read this Karate Kid tale and say, now I want to read about more Legion, right? <laughs> I think that this would have been like, oh, okay. That's you true.
0: Know? Yeah, this one we don't really get any sense of the fact that he's dead. We're only just kind of told that by the opening, by basically the cover image. I mean, Final F- I mean, I still... It wasn't the best. Like I said, it's it's the weakest in the three issues, but I didn't have a problem with the story. I still thought it was enjoyable. It was well told. I mean, Parabek is an outstanding artist. I don't think this is his best stuff, but it, again, there's nothing wrong with it. There are things we could have seen in the story, I guess, is what you're saying, that would have elevated it and made it better. But nothing about the story made me kind of go, well, that was weird or that was weak. That didn't belong there. So I guess mm-hmm. if, if the problem with this story is that it's only okay – I'm fine with that.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that I'm a longtime Legion reader, mm-hmm. and I learned something new about his character in the story, and I guess that's probably part of the purpose of this book.
0: Yeah. Okay, last question uh, related to Karate Kid and the story in particular armor hot dogs were still a thing in the 30th century? <laughs> well, if you look, he has some throwaway line. They're always able to implicate
2: Cosmic Boy in any sort of 20th century reference, and I think at some point he says, you know, curse Cosmic Boy and his 20th century video festival. <laughs> okay. uh, so, uh, yeah. I don't even know if armor hot dogs still exist now, but I'm think... not a bit...
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> um... You know, you mentioned a few other things, but let's get specific recommendations for better Legion stories, better Karate Kid stories. What would you say? If somebody wanted to know more about this character or the Legion in general, what are your favorite stories? What would you recommend?
2: so for this character I would say I have no idea what archive it's in but his first story when he gets enrolled into the Legion with that nemesis kid is probably a very good story for him and again the first five issues of the Baxter run which is the Legion of Superheroes versus the Legion of Supervillains, where he dies is probably a good showcase for him in terms of general Legion stories I would say everybody's going to point to Great Darkness Saga and I would agree because that was so fantastic And I mean the villain is Darkseid spoilers <laughs> but but. That Back then, Darkseid hadn't been around for a long time, so it really was a surprise, which is hard to believe because he's everywhere now. Right. Um, and then I would say that if you're really like, I've never read The Legion of Superheroes before and I'm interested in sort of seeing what these characters are about, I actually would recommend the Wade one because I think that that's an easy way. It was a brand new team, and so when you pick up issue one, you're starting where everybody is starting off at um, and uh, would be a way to ease into Legion continuity as opposed to dropping in in the 80s, realizing that there have been, you know, 25 years beforehand.
0: You've got a cast of 30 characters, and you're, they're not writing it like you know them all. But No, yeah. I, I completely agree. The Wade run is easily the most accessible run. I would highly recommend that. Uh, I looked it up really quickly. Karate Kid's first appearance was collected in the Art Legion Archives Volume 5, and also Showcase presents the Legion Volume 2, so you can find those. I haven't read them I haven't even seen them but I would imagine if you can find the Karate Kid solo series uh that's that's probably a good showcase of his powers it might be like an interesting like the way you described it like a sort of 12 labors of Hercules type of series with Karate Kid um and then again I one of my favorite movies I love it my cousin Vinny um, oh, God, that's the other Ralph Macchio. That's that's oh, that's the other karate no, kid. Ralph Macchio, that's the other karate kid. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I would say the outsiders. Oh like, that one's good. Day too. Golden Pony Boy. Right. <laughs>
0: Pony Boy could be a legionnaire. He could. Uh, that sounds like that sounds like a Legion character. Oh, that sounds like one of the subs or one of the people who didn't make the team. Pony Boy. <laughs> oh, now I gotta tell that story, so all right, and thank you very much for being on The Secret Origins again. Thank you very much for being on all of your appearances here, from Power Girl to uh, Hawk and Dove to uh, – Yeah, the uh, Creeper. The Don't creeper. forget the I'm Creeper. The Creeper, that was the one I was forgetting. <laughs> about. No, but thank you. Every time we get together and talk, uh, I always enjoy these. It's been a blast talking to I'm, you. I'm so glad that you were able to do some of these episodes with me. And it was great talking to you again about this character.
2: Yeah, and I just want to thank you, Ryan. This has really been, this whole podcast, um, every episode has really been fantastic. And it's been fun to revisit this book. And and I know how hard it's been to sort of produce this with the high quality that you've done. And um, and I just want to thank you. It's been, you know, must-listen podcasts for me every week.
0: Well, a good, a generous helping of the quality go, is owed to guests like yourself. Uh, where else can people find you online if they want to hear or read more from you? Uh,
2: on the internet, you can find me at uh, Supergirl Comic Box Commentary, which is the Supergirl blog I run. Um, I also do Friday reviews on the Legion of Superbloggers, where currently I'm doing the Mark Wade one, as I said. And uh, I'm probably most active on Twitter at DrAnge70.
0: Thank you very much. Check out those blogs, people. Check out the Three Boot reviews, the Five Years Later reviews on Legion of Super Bloggers. Check out the Supergirl commentaries. Obviously, we've got a new season coming up. There's going to be big stuff in Supergirl's future. So, Ange, thank you very much one more time.
2: No, thanks, Ryan. Uh, thanks for inviting me. All
0: right, people, don't go away because we've got one more dead Legionnaire with a brand-new guest. Don't go away. <laughs> yourself primarily
3: as a singer or as a poet? Well, I think of myself more as a song and dance man, you know. <laughs> you may call him Alias, you may call him Lucky Wilberry. you may
2: call him Bobby, you may call him Zimmy, but the world calls him Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher.
0: We're back for one more tribute in our Legion Memorial episode, talking about the life and death of Chemical King. And with all of the Legion stories throughout Secret Origins, to not have the man behind the Legion of Super Bloggers on this podcast at least once would have been a missed opportunity of cosmic proportions. Please welcome, making his belated but welcome first appearance, Little Russell Burbage of Earth.
5: Thank you, Ryan. I'm really happy to be here.
0: It's great to have you, really, and thank you very much. As I already mentioned, we're going to be talking about Chemical King. But before we even get to him, I have asked this question of everybody. I'm asking it of you now. How and when did you get into the Legion of Superheroes?
5: Well, I was traveling with my family in 1975, and I was looking around the uh, gift shop at the airport, and I came across a comic book with all of these sort of dynamic figures drawn on it. And by that point, I was about 10 or so. And I'd seen Kurt Swan, uh, Superman, and Dick Dillon, Justice League. But this was new to me. There's all these colorful characters. I didn't recognize any of them. And I thought, what the heck is this? I have to buy it. And I picked it up. And of course, it was Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. And it was issued 212. Which, if anyone knows their Legion history, was the one where five or six Legion rejects come in and say, Hey, we want to take your place in the Legion. So some boy from Cosmic Boys Planet and some girl from Saturn Girls Planet came in and said, Just because you were here first doesn't mean you're better. And they had this big fight. And basically you couldn't think of a better jumping on point because right away I learned there's six or seven legionnaires who have, you know, this distinct powers. They're all from different planets. They're all, you know, teamwork's most important. The art was fantastic. And boy, was I hooked. I went around and tried to find all the issues around there. And lo and behold, the issue right around that time was 211, which featured this green garbed guy called Chemical King, and he saves the day. And for me, 10-year-old Russell, little really little Russell Burbage at that point, (laughs) I thought, you know, who is this Chemical King guy? And and he's a viable character. He's he's awesome. He he was the star of the show. So from that day forward, I've acquired all of the Silver Age Legion stories, and I've been a lifetime fan of the Legion ever since.
0: So how did that lead to the Legion of Super Bloggers?
5: Well, that was mostly Shag, irredeemable Shag, betting or guiding me into you know, hey, somebody should put out a Legion blog. You know, Russell, I know you like the Legion, and I bit (laughs) and um got a good group of guys together and we're all handling different eras different versions of the legion um which is great because there's so much legion history out there that it would be impossible i think for one or even two people to do but we have a good group of like five or six of us putting out different posts so we've basically done a uh, pretty good job of having something new every day five days a week for mm, two years so it's nice to do
0: well, you've definitely got a good uh, – you've assembled a good core cast of uh, bloggers around you, and I know because I've had most of them on the show.
5: <laughs> yes, and I appreciate the support of the podcast community. None of us have really the time or the – inclination to talk about the Legion so much but we we love writing about it and we love talking about it on other people's shows so that's always great
0: yeah it is happy to have you and since I've got you here I'm gonna put off our Chemical King talk for just another minute because I've still got a few lingering questions about Pharaoh Lad that perhaps you can answer
5: (laughs) I I will do my best
0: uh so the first question was Pharaoh Lad ever shown in his original stories or, or ever really without his mask do we know what his disfigured face is supposed to look like
5: um, well that's kind of a yes or no answer because no, we never did see Andrew Nolan's face. However, in Legion number three hundred, the cover where all the various different artists drew the Legionnaires, we do see Douglas's mutated face. Okay. And we're thinking since they're twins, then that space is the same. Okay. So okay. maybe sort of.
0: All right, then question number two, I noticed that, and this was something that I just noticed when I was perusing the Legion of Superbloggers, but I noticed that Feral Lad's costume and his helmet look a whole lot like the Persuader from the Fatal Five. Was there ever any connection between them, or is that just kind of a coincidence?
5: There was no characterization connection between them. However, they were both created by Jim Shooter, and they were both designed by Kurt Swan. So there's that. Um... I don't know if you touched on the fact that originally Jim Shooter planned on making Feralad black. Yeah, we talked uh, about that. Yeah. African American. And since DC wouldn't let him do that, he decided to never show his face at all and then to kill him. And so when he died, that was the story that introduced the Persuader as one of the Fatal Five. So maybe there was a
0: kind of a trade off there that possible. Maybe they liked the costume design and wanted to keep it. <laughs> right. In the,
5: the, <laughs> in the universe itself, there was no connection.
0: Okay. I mean, I get that because I really like the costume design, and I, I, my Legion knowledge is pretty spotty. I'm still in the middle of reading the the <laughs> Curse trade paperback, and I've, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm kind of limited in my knowledge of the Legion. But I, my appreciation, my love of it, has grown a lot just through this podcast and reading some yeah. of these stories. And Pharaoh Lad is definitely one of the standout characters. I really like that story. I like the idea behind that character. And you sort of answered one of my lingering questions. I, I guess that sort of makes sense. If if Jim Shooter couldn't make the character black because of the politics of the time, then never showing his face, I get, I can kind of understand that compromise. Right. The next step, though, where he just decided to kill him off, though, still seems a little odd to me. But actually, that kind of segues to another question that I was just thinking of this morning. Like, had somebody like Pharaoh Lad had he survived with his kind of visual style and, and wearing the mask and never really seeing the man underneath there, mm-hmm. do you think he would have evolved to become sort of like a wildfire type character?
5: Uh, it's hard to say because every story you read by somebody besides Jim Shooter kind of tweaks the character a little differently. But I feel like one of his main characterizations was his you know his basic calmness. And so I don't think he would become a wildfire. I think he would be more of an invisible kid or a tactician type or he would realized that he couldn't just be throwing himself in front of all these fireballs and expect to survive. So he would have to step back and be more of a Batman or a Green Arrow type that would say, hey, you know, Superboy, do that kind of. But it's hard to say. He was very impetuous in quite a few of his earlier stories. So it's possible. Okay. It's hard to say. But I do want to say that his character design is, is one of the best Legion character designs ever. So I think every time he comes back, they tweak his costume a little bit. But it, the, basic, the basics never change. So that you can't really say about many of the Legionnaires except maybe Someboy and Brainiac 5. Most of them have all changed their costume some. Mm-hmm. It's, it's his character design is, is very good, I thought.
0: All right, then, let us finally get to the character that you are here to talk about. Who am I talking about? Well, oh, Chemical King, <laughs> right. I think we finally, yeah, <laughs> Chemical King. It's been a while. We, yeah. We've gone through a sort of circuitous route to get here, but yes. uh, you had your pick of Legion stories in this series. You asked for this one. Yes. And you sort of mentioned, because he was kind of in one of those stories, one of the first issues that you read. Right. Um, was there any other reason? I mean, do you have a particular fondness for this character?
5: I do, and I don't really understand why I have it. I've always been a fan of the so-called second tier or, you know, fan B type characters. I, Superman, Hulk, Thor, no, not so much. More Aquaman, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, you know, mm-hmm. Element Lad, Chemical King, Light Last. those characters instead of the major ones. And when I first started reading Legion, there were 20 plus characters, right? So mm-hmm. I had to learn who they all were. And like I said, when I picked up this story where Chemical King basically saves Element Lad's life... Who are you to tell me that this character's not, you know, viable? He's, he's awesome. <laughs> he stands there and he, he saves a, a perfectly, his, you know, his friend. And it's, it's then only later when people say, oh, yeah, his powers were confusing and, you know, nobody ever did anything with him. It's like kind of the Tyrock thing where he's there and he's a perfectly fine character, but nobody used him. That's not the character's fault. That's the writer's fault. So above and beyond the fact that he was one of the first Legionnaires I ever encountered, uh, my favorite color is green. Uh, <laughs> I just, you know, I like the way Mike Grell drew him. And I just thought, oh, this is cool. It's not the same sort of super strong or super fast or super agile type that you can get a dime a dozen, really. It was his uniqueness uh, that appealed to me.
0: Cool. All right, then, let's get into the character's publication history. And as always, if I leave something out or if I get anything just completely wrong, please feel free to correct me when we're done.
5: Ryan, I feel like there's only like eight issues here, so I don't think you can get anything wrong.
0: Uh, Well, as the editor's note at the back of this issue of Secret Origins explains, Reader's first real look at Chemical King was in Adventure Comics 354, published in 1967, as a memorial statue of a future Legionnaire who would go on to die saving the Earth. Then in 1968, the young and very much alive Chemical King debuted in Adventure Comics 371. After that, he appeared only 17 more times over the next 10 years before he was killed off. Those appearances included Adventure Comics 372, 375, 377, and 379, then Action Comics three eighty one, three eighty seven, and three eighty nine. I promise I'm not listing every single one. After that, you almost are. Sh- almost, <laughs> <laughs> almost, almost. I was gonna take a break now. But after that, he showed up nine times in Legion Adventures published in Superboy, as well as in a Legion story in DC Special issue twenty eight. He died in Superboy issue two hundred and twenty eight, published in nineteen seventy seven. After his death, he appeared two more times, either in Flashback or as a spirit in the Magic Wars storyline that closed out the Baxter series. Aside from that and this secret origin story, Russell, do you know of any other appearances of Chemical King? Uh, No, that is it. <laughs> I don't remember him appearing like in the Three Boot universe or... In
5: the Legionnaire series, he was a news reporter or a video player or whatever it's, what it was called in that era, some sort of newsman. And it was there was talk that he was a boyfriend of the Invisible Kid. Okay. So if you have a copy of the DC Comics encyclopedia and you look up the Chemical King entry, it says that Current continued at that time, which would have been, you know, 95 or 2000-ish. Uh, it says he's in a relationship with the uh, Invisible Kid.
0: Okay. That actually answers one of the questions I had about this story <laughs> that we can get to. Actually, let's let's get to there right now. Are you ready to tell our listeners the story of Chemical King?
2: Yes.
5: So uh, sit back and listen as I bring you the unique properties of Kondo Arlick, written by Robert Lauren Fleming, art by Chris Sprouse and Al Gordon, uh, letters by John Costanza, colors by Tom McGraw, and editing by Mark Wade. So the story opens on Fawn, and an unnamed narrator is explaining what happened the day Kondo Arlick was born and how he accidentally destroyed the hospital while he was a newborn infant by making it collapse via rusty steel girders. His birth made news all over the galaxy, and that led to him being shipped off to Earth and put under the care of eager scientists wearing anti-contaminant suits in a completely sterile laboratory. And He tries to play peekaboo with the scientists who are monitoring him, but they and his parents have almost no interest in him at all. Then TV monitors are set up to teach him chemistry so that he can perhaps master his ability to accelerate chemical reactions. And that's where the story starts. We see a baby... Uh, surrounded by video monitors teaching him about helium. So then 14 years later, he's still alone, still in that sterile laboratory, still trying to master some sort of chemical reaction power. Suddenly, the first invisible king arrives and immediately shows him that people can also affect chemical reactions. He reaches out and shakes his hand and starts the blood flowing. He takes him outside, shows him the sun for the first time. He signs Kondo out under his uh, authorization and takes him to his apartment. I guess they're still on Earth. And then they live together in Lyle's apartment. Eventually, uh, under Lyle Norg's The Invisible Kids watch, Kondo gets better, and he no longer needs to take insulin to control his blood sugar level. He's getting better at controlling his chemical reaction powers. Still, he often falls back into his uh, moody and shy personality. So Lyle tries to bring out the best in him, and Kondo responds that he considers Invisible Kid his best friend. Then Invisible Kid tells him that to help him in his uh, development, he's recommended he, Kondo, uh, join the new Legion Academy. So Chemical King, as he is now known, passes the Legion Academy training and actually joins the Legion of Superheroes. And for a short time, he is an active and energetic member. However, one terrible night, Invisible Kid is killed in the line of duty. In one of the most emotional scenes ever shown in comics, Chemical King breaks down and cries, where is Invisible Kid? Where are his energies? And now feeling groundless, he returns to being a shy introvert and closes in on himself. He chooses not to go on Legion missions, and Brainiac 5 confronts him and goes so far as to suggest that perhaps Chemical King should quit the Legion altogether. Then, on a mission to stop the Australian dictator Darragon. Chemical King steps forward and stops a cosmic energy sphere by internalizing the chemical reaction so that it does not explode. He saves his friend and thousands of people around him in Australia. As Chemical King dies, he realizes that Invisible Kid's unique properties had gone to him, and it made him brave. We learn that Brainiac 5 has been the narrator of this story all along, and he says that Chemical King's unique energies have now passed on to him, changing him as well.
0: All right, thank you very much. <laughs> what do you think about the story?
5: I like the majority of it. <laughs> I think it is one of the best examples of what we could do with a character that everybody thinks is, is useless or pointless mm-hmm. because you give him a backstory on the beginning, the first pages, or something they call the scientists and the parents call him an it instead <laughs> of a he. Um, little things like that that make it, you know, there's a huge, beautiful page. Of a, a huge laboratory, and he's sitting there all by himself, feeling very, very tiny. It's like I feel for the guy. I feel sorry for him. He's got a great power. He can do all sorts of different things, but then he doesn't know what to do. He's he's like, a, dare I say it, a kind of a comic book geek or somebody who has no real social skills, right? Mm-hmm. So he's trying to do his best, but when his buddy dies, he doesn't know what to do, and nobody comes up to him and puts their arm around his shoulder and tries to explain to him what it is. He's very much an outsider, and in the Legion of Superheroes, where the majority of the characters are all from different planets, different backgrounds, it's easy for him to get lost in the mix. And I thought that was very well told and very well illustrated.
0: I agree. and. There's a lot about this story that I really like, particularly when it's dealing like as a, as a character spotlight and talking about these thematic elements. When you have a character who's all about chemicals, chemical reactions, bondings, and and right. this this emphasis on the physical properties, the right. elements, and the chemistry that can make us up. But that's not what his concern is. His relationship with Invisible Kid and what he says at the end as he's dying. That's not what makes us special. It's not these like physical properties, the physical matter that defines us. It's the bits of our character. And he says, What made Invisible Kid unique, his unique properties, was the bravery and what he instilled in me. And that led to Chemical King sacrificing himself. And he right. passes that on, too. I love all of that. Um, yeah. But, and again, you sort of mentioned that first page it's a striking first image i mean it's a splash page with a baby hooked up to wires and monitor, with like just surrounded yeah. by television monitors tons of them with this clown telling us what he, the chemical number of helium is right and it's it's really jarring but there's also a whole lot of text on that first page yeah. kind of describing what this kid was like as a baby and, you know, like how these powers manifested in kind of a horrific fashion. You know, when the, the hospital literally collapsed around him because he was, you know, breaking down the rust or, you know, turning like oxidizing all of right. like the new, you know, metal in the building and everything. And, and I was just kind of like, gosh, it, it's a comic. I really would have liked to see that rather than just being told it in text. Yeah. Um, And I'm really glad that you sort of confirmed that in the Legionnaires' continuity that Chemical King and Invisible Kid were in a relationship because I definitely got that from this story that, you know, they said we're best friends, but I was like, they're acting like more than just, you know, so called quote unquote best friends. They're acting like lovers. (laughs) He reacts to Invisible Kid's death the way a lover would. However,. I have I have kind of read that into some previous Secret origin stories, particularly with Golden Age stories where – or Golden Age characters where, because of the times, they weren't right. allowed to be overt in details like that. And I've often been called – it's like, okay, Ryan, you're reading too much into that relationship. So I, I read this story and I was like, okay, maybe I'm reading too much into it again. But they really seem like they're boyfriends.
5: Well, well, when I read the story, I hadn't heard or or really imagined that they were together. And it seems like I could read it one of two ways. You know, it was either like infatuation or or some sort of relationship. Sure. Or it was just like, you know, this totally isolated, lonely young man Mm -hmm. being swept off his feet and brought into the exciting world of the Legion. And then really having his best friend, you know, murdered and the other friend saying, well, yeah, no, this this sort of stuff happens. Sorry. And not being understanding that. No, no, this is like if it's hard to say in here, but like maybe if Batman was killed, Superman would be really, really mad. Or if, if Aqualad were killed, Aquaman would be really, really upset. That kind of friendship. And it hadn't ever been portrayed in the Legion before. Everybody was chummy and everybody was best pals with everybody. But I think in this case, it was, wow, I. That was the reason I joined the Legion, and, and now I have nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So it could be a relationship, and I don't say it's not, and I think it's fine, but it's definitely not your typical superhero, you know, like Batman who says, oh, yeah, you know, Robins die, you know, once a week. You know, I just <laughs> deal with it. But it, this one, it just was so, such an emotional punch there to say, oh, yeah, by the way, you know, Invisible Kid died.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, what?
5: You yeah. know, it was very powerful, I thought. Yeah.
0: And you commented, like, in the beginning, the way he's raised, it's like people don't treat him as a human. He's, he's right. raised by scientists. He's he's cut off. His parents are like, okay, yeah, he's, like, it seems like these scientists, they're taking care of him. He's safe. Let's go. We got to play him, yeah. like they want nothing to do with him, uh, and then I think Invisible Kid is sort of the first person who recognizes him and who treats him like a person who who brings him into the world, who like teaches him how to be a man, and like and allows him to kind of be himself as a person, and right. that that resonates on several different levels uh, as the pure storytelling of this you know sci-fi fantasy, but I also think there's a social commentary there, and and I think it makes it a a much stronger story. Uh, getting back to the parents, were they ever characters in the original stories, like from the seventies? Was, was no like, how no. much how much of this story was actually just manufactured by this creative team, and how much of this was in the established history? Well,
5: that's something I definitely wanted to talk about because in the in the established continuity, his best friend or his roommate at the Legion Academy was Timberwolf, and so they were friends. And when um, Chemical King was killed in two twenty eight. It was Timberwolf, the next issue, who was like, you know, I've got to avenge my old buddy. Hmm. And yet you wouldn't know that at all by reading this story. Timberwolf is featured in a couple back panels, but never like, oh, yeah, hey, Lyle, I met this other guy at the Academy and he's Hmm. kind of fun or something. Nothing. No mention at all of that sort of stuff. So it's a little bit made up from whole cloth. And then, of course, in the adventure where he dies, Brainiac 5 wasn't in that adventure at all. It was Superboy. Mm. And it really, from that part, I I really feel conflicted because in the original story, he was brought along to trace a very minute um, radiation beam that was coming out of Australia and they needed to find out where it was going to see if Daragon was being, who he was communicating with. And so Chemical King was there to stabilize the communication wave. So he had a very specific purpose for being there. And it's just in this story, it's kind of like, yeah, you're here at the headquarters. We're leaving. Can you want to go with or stay? <laughs> Just like, come on. I mean, he was still a legionnaire. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit annoying to read that part. And then, of course, Superboy wasn't there. So it's Brainiac 5. And then that leads to my, my biggest gripe of the story is that it suddenly twists into a Brainiac 5 story. It's like, oh, yeah, the death of Chemical King really affected me. Huh? Since when?
0: <laughs> yeah that i found that part of the end sort of like the, the narrative changes and it's like yeah. who's this been about like and it's it's sort of I, I guess it's just weird because the two characters we spend the most time with are invisible kid and then chemical king and they're right. both dead by the end of the story so we need a survivor right and, and, and i like you know taken out of context i really like the last page i like that one simple splash of brainiac standing under the statues of the fallen legionnaires. Right. But then I'm looking at it and I'm also like, well why didn't we get a story why didn't we get Invisible Kid's origin? Why didn't we get, you know, right. Triplicate Girl or Duo Damsels? Yeah. Uh, and I can see it, yeah, I can see it. it it is sort of a weird switch of who our POV character is at the end. And
5: Yeah. Well and I, I wish that it had been maybe Timberwolf or somebody who knew him a little bit more. Even maybe Element Lad, there was talk in some of the Legion fanzines and, and fan conversations at of the time that Chemical King and Element Lad were spending a lot of time together because their powers were similar. Mm-hmm. So there was never anything shown in any comics where they were like together in any sense of the word, but it would have been nice if he had been the... Hey, I missed this adventure in Australia and one of my good friends died. I wish I'd known him better, blah, 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 blah. That to me would have made a lot more sense than Brainiac Five just standing there in front of, you know, four dead guys thinking, <laughs> wait, why is Brainiac Five of all characters, he's the most cold? Mm-hmm. I-, I just, I didn't get that. I thought they dropped the ball there. That was just not appropriate. And they were trying to clearly trying to use a replacement for Superboy because those from the last page or so, everything there was actually Superboy in the adventure. And Kondo doesn't have a death moment in the actual comic where he dies. So I like that part. But if they couldn't use Superboy, why couldn't they have used like Monel or Yeah Wildfire th- or somebody who was the Legion leader at the time? So
0: right. somebody who you can who you can see having an emotional reaction because the death scene is so emotional
5: right you know and if you have a chance to read the actual death story in 228 or 229 it was the first time that a legionnaire had died in quite a long time Mm. uh, a couple years and it's like one of those stories where oh we're all having fun until somebody you know pokes their eye out oh for two or three issues the legionnaires were pissed they Mm. were gritty and just like we've got to avenge this he went down to save the entire continent of australia possibly the whole world we're going to get revenge. And Superboy and and Wildfire and Monel, those and Ultra Boy, those kind of super super powered kids were especially mad because, you know, they were the ones who were invulnerable. If they had been around to save, they would have taken the blast instead of him. So there was that whole, you know, survivors guilt, shall I say, type of thing going on for a couple of issues. So it was it was really deep, but you lose all of that in this story.
0: Yeah, you don't really get the fallout of it. You don't get the sense of yeah, the survivors guilt or the the rage. I mean, I think I can see them trying to put that on Brainiac 5, but he doesn't seem like the type of character who would feel that to that extent.
5: Yeah, I mean, even if it was, say, Cosmic Boy, who's, you know, Mm -hmm. Mr. Legion to a lot of fans, if he had said, you know, I wasn't there, I've got to be on eternal vigil for this sort of thing to never happen again, It's it's, I've started this thing that's now, you know, Mm -hmm. taken so many lives. Something like that would have been like, oh, of course, you know, of course Cosmic Boy's thinking that. Mm -hmm. Or even Saturn Girl, someone like that would have been like, Oh, the the weight of uh, leadership is heavy, or something. You know, something mm-hmm. like that would have made a lot more sense than Brainiac Five just standing there saying, "Oh yeah, I feel changed
0: now." <laughs> I know, like the the timeline doesn't necessarily match up, but that last, it seems wrong that Karate Kid isn't in that last page of like the Fall yeah. Engineers. Now I know <laughs> that the timeline doesn't work out, but for being an issue that's all about the Legionnaires who have died. We don't get any hint that Karate Kid has died in this issue, except for the cover. Like in in his own story, there's no, they never show any part of his like passing or anything, or even really his time with the Legion, which was a, a complaint that I talked about with, uh, with Ange on the last segment. Yeah. Speaking of that, what do you, what do you think of the cover of this one? Uh, I would have preferred
5: something similar to uh, the comic where he made his debut, something like uh, Adventure, what was it, 354? Yeah. You know, the Hall of Heroes. And it's the same general idea, but this way you've got these huge hero statues and you've got the Legionnaires and, you know, some of the uh, Marvel Ultra Force or whoever they are standing around. So that's kind of cool. And you can definitely recognize um, Dave Cockrum's style. But my complaint is similar to what you just mentioned. Where's Invisible Kid? I mean, he was the second member to die, and you would think that they would have shoehorned him in here somehow rather than just as a supporting character in Chemical King's story. I I wish they had – well, I guess I'm not talking about the cover anymore, but (laughs) I wish they had done something with Invisible Kid here. Mm -hmm. The cover is nice, but I I would have liked something a little bit more reverent maybe, if Mm -hmm. that's the right word.
0: Uh, Yeah, I I get that, and I think maybe – I talked about this a little bit with Tim. Maybe it's the fact that the characters are in color while everybody else is washed out, which seems like Mm. the opposite of what you would want for a memorial. Now, I understand they are the focus, so you want to make them the center of the cover attention, but Mm. it does seem a little bit odd. Like I don't get the sense that these characters are dead, and maybe it's just because of the poses that they're in seem more dynamic and... And I don't know. I I don't like the way Cockrum draws Pharaoh Lad in this. I, I don't like the way he draws the helmet, mm. and ah, uh, it, it's okay. I uh, the spirit of the cover. I understand what they were going for, and I kind of like yeah. that. I, the execution. I wish I liked it a little bit more.
5: Yeah, I agree with that. I wish I liked it a little bit more.
0: What do you think about Chris Sprouse's interior art on the story? I liked it. I have not seen Chris Sprouse's stuff
5: before this. I was reading the Legion up until the five year later, and then I sort of stopped. So I didn't see his take on the Legionnaires and any of those things that he did until after I saw this. Um, I think the cover or the first page is kind of representative of the, the style. It's really busy, but very pretty. Mm-hmm. So I I, <laughs> I guess that's a compliment. Like. He does a lot of good work with, like, the pages where he, it's just him and Lyle just talking. And then there's the next scene where they're flying over some city, and there's so much detail in the city. It's like, okay, that's not really the point, though. Mm-hmm. And then the headquarters and things look fine. The people look fine. I made a note to myself to say that, you know, when Lyle first meets Kondo... He doesn't look like he's fourteen.
0: I had the exact same note. These look like adult characters. Yeah, like I was like, aren't they supposed to be like youngish teenagers? And and I know the the timeline for the Legion. I'm I'm not sure like how old these characters were supposed to be when they died, but uh, especially Invisible Kid doesn't look like a fourteen year old.
5: No, no, for sure. And we we have to surmise that the Invisible Kid's a couple years older than Chemical King, but still, they look like they're contemporaries mm-hmm. and so it's that's a little bit off it's the whole oh they're they're drawn beautifully so but they're not drawn like their kids mm-hmm. um that was one of my really only complaints i had uh the art i really like i said before the emotional impact of that page where he's he breaks down and cries mm-hmm. it's like you never read stuff like that and this that one shot of him with his eyes wide open like what you know you can just see him in a movie. Oh, yeah. Just shocked yeah. by the the news that you know Brainiac Five is telling him that Invisible Kid's dead, and then later Brainiac Five himself is like, you know, got this shocked look on his face, like, "Wait, you're gonna, you're killing yourself. Stop, stop!" And it's too late. A lot of that stuff is really, really well done.
0: Yeah, and some of the detail that he puts into it is really, really strong. Now, sometimes it gets a little bit overwhelming. Again, like right. in that first page and the page where they're in the hover car leaving the laboratory for the first time. Yeah, and. I can maybe accept that because I, I get the feeling that it's supposed to be a little bit overwhelming for Kondo too, but mm-hmm. maybe a little bit too much. But yeah, just the the expressiveness that he puts in the faces, the, the emotion that you get, especially when Kondo hears about Lyle's death. And then later on, when we see his death, when you kind of get Brainiac's reaction, even in that that top panel on page twelve, I think the artist that I would compare to, and they don't have similar styles necessarily, but in terms of capturing the expressiveness of the facial features, it kind of reminds me of Kevin McGuire from Justice League International.
5: Yes, I I can
0: see that. Yeah. So overall, I, I really liked this story. I I I got the. Certainly not, not without its faults. Um, And I think maybe you actually see more faults in the story than I do because (laughs) you have the sort of the burden of knowledge of what the original continuity had been and what changes they had made. I didn't know those. I didn't know what they had changed, so it didn't affect me that way. And I I kind of made a similar uh, comment when I was covering the Karate Kid origin. But in terms of the pure emotion of the story and and the thematic elements, I really, really liked it. It was it was a strong it was it was a good enjoyable story. I was glad that I got a chance to read this one.
5: Yeah, it's uh, in my opinion it's the strongest of the three, and it that's ironic because as Chemical King is probably the worst of the three characters, but the story <laughs> itself was wow. He he could have been made interesting. You know, I made a note to myself that if they had not killed him and they didn't want to use him, he could have gone around and like helped cure people of diabetes, or they he could have worked with some of the um, other metabolical disorders, if he's if he had the power to sit to stop his own diabetes, then he could go imagine if he went to like Nationwide Children's Hospital or someplace like that and and worked on, you know, kids with I'll just stick to diabetes because I'm not a doctor, but basically, you know, some sort of metabolical um, problems. I mean, he could have been the same sort of supporting character as Invisible Kid was, you know, you, you read now that he's dead that he'd spend a lot of time doing research and going around and helping people like mm-hmm. he does here with, okay. with condo,
0: even if they took him off of the front lines, because I mean, on a sort of meta level, if the writers just thought he was too powerful in a fight, they could have made him basically in a support staff role as the universal doctor for the team. It's
5: exactly. Right. I had a note here that said, you know, even, even if he wasn't the front line, he would instantly, you know, stop your bleeding, mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, calm your, your heart rate and send you back into the fight. So yeah. Yeah, exactly.
3: it's, that's huge.
5: <laughs> so, all
0: right. Um, aside from this story, I kind of uh, we, we sort of, <laughs> of joked about it beforehand. Are there any other major Chemical King stories that you would recommend if somebody liked this story and wanted to know more about this character?
5: Uh, for sure, I would suggest picking up Superboy number two eleven from September nineteen seventy five. It's the one with Element Lad shooting Roxas. And if you're a fan of Element Lad or the five-year-later Roxas, the bounty hunter character, you'd want to pick this up anyway. But in this story, Element Lad is, sees Roxas for the first time and decides to go and kill him because Roxas, as maybe you don't know, but uh, he's the one who killed all of the other people on Element Lad's planet. So okay. Element Lad is, sees him and he's like, I don't care about Legion membership. I'm going to go kill this guy. And Chemical King lets him. He, he lets uh, Element Lad shoot him. And it's like he and he's fighting Superboy and this whole moral issue, really re- relatively heavy for the time, saying, you know, death solves some things and death doesn't solve some other things. So it's a very, very good story. And the spotlight is clearly on Element Lad and Chemical King. The other one I'd recommend is um, kind of a cheat. It's uh, Superboy 195. It's the one where Wildfire is uh, introduced. And he goes out on a mission with Chemical King and Phantom Girl and Colossal Boy. And Colossal Boy gets knocked out by this mechanical tractor or something. And the Chemical King saves his life. But he basically has the powers of metamorpho in that story. <laughs> so the writer kind of gets it wrong. But uh, he's still there. And he is, uh, hes again, a viable, strong character. Yeah. Um, the only other story I, I really know of is the one that you mentioned in DC Special, uh, number 28. That's the Earth-Shattering Disaster story, and that's got a Batman story versus, I think, Quakemaster. Mm-hmm. And Aquaman versus, I think, some uh, British Petroleum oil slick something. And then the Legion versus an eco-terrorist who's trying to explode the uh, power sphere that's in downtown Metropolis. And Chemical King um, helps save the day. It's another example of him being useful if the writer knows what he's doing.
0: Well, I know his, uh, his sort of classic stories from the 70s, the ones that have been reprinted. You can find those listeners either in Legion Archives, Volumes 8 through 13, or the Showcase presents the Legions, Number 4 and 5. The other story that I read just this morning, kind of to prep for this one, uh, he was in a uh, a flashback story in Legion of Superheroes issue 59. That was the last issue before the four-part Magic Wars that closed out the Baxter series. Uh, And That that series, the flashback, is all about Invisible Kid and Chemical King. Now, you don't get the sense of their relationship. It it actually sort of seems like it's almost a first meeting of the two. Uh, So... Continuity doesn't quite line up they don't they certainly don't seem to have the same bond as in this one, but in terms of establishing them their friendship, and that was published about a year before this story, so maybe that was kind of you know uh, planting the seeds for something like this, maybe that was you know Giffen or Levitz kind of showing what might happen with the characters
5: yeah, that is a good one. Yeah.
0: um before we go before I let you uh plug anything, I had another question for you. Uh, yes. And I'm I'm also going to open this up to all of our listeners because we had a whole lot of fun a couple episodes ago when I started asking people to name their favorite Batman villains. So <laughs> Russell, and I'll give you your top three. Who are your top three favorite Legionnaires?
5: Ooh, that's really a hard question. <laughs> uh, right off the top of my head, I would say Element Lad just because anyone who can kind of change elements from one to another and not look like Metamorpho is, <laughs> is, is high up in my book. Uh, I always liked the super powerful, kick-ass take names, Princess Projectora. Okay. So not really the earlier version, but the more later version, and I don't want to say, give too much away about that. Uh, and then, gosh, I always like Cosmic Boy. Magnetic powers is, is, is something that you, you can't go wrong with. So I'll pick those three.
0: Alright. Well, if you if you decide to change your mind or if you need to revise or edit your list, you can always uh write something into the comments section for this episode. <laughs> and listeners, you can do the same thing. Who are your top three favorite legionnaires? Um I think my answer will depend greatly on whether or not I'm accepting the Legion of Substitute Heroes and any other uh like reserve members <laughs> or rejects.
5: Yeah, um, so have you answered your own question there, Ryan? Or are you, you...
0: Uh, if Hanging I'm on the fence. if I'm not counting the Legion of subs or other like oddball characters like Arm Fall Off Boy because Arm Fall Off Boy would be the top three like oh I'll, you're <laughs> kidding, oh, come I'm on. kidding. <laughs> if I'm just going with proper Legionnaires um, Bouncing Boy Dream Girl maybe I don't know maybe. Mm. Um, I, don't know, I I like her for some reason. Maybe it's just the visual, it's just the aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, and right now, the third spot is kind of a toss-up between Chameleon Boy and maybe Pharaoh Lad. I really like Pharaoh Lad. Mm. He came out he came out of this issue uh, with a strong showing. So, Ooh, I don't know. like yeah. I said, I need to read a whole lot more Legion stories before I can answer that with any kind of authority. But I really like Bouncing Boy, which I will be happy to talk about more in a couple episodes from now. <laughs> <laughs> so. Russell, I want to thank you very, very much for being on this episode of Secret Origins Podcast. Where else can people find you online if they want to know more about you or if they want to hear more about your thoughts on the Legion of Superheroes?
5: Well, I'm always at the Legion of Superbloggers.blogspot.com. That's my uh, favorite haunt, and that's uh, basically where you can find me.
0: Thank you very much. One more time, it was great talking to you. Long live the Legion. Long live the Legion. Hello everyone, I missed you last week, I really did. If you follow along with the Fire and Water Network social media feeds, you might have seen some teasers for new podcasts set to debut in the coming months after Secret Origins wraps up. I'll tell you all about one of those shows at the end of this episode. But first, your listener feedback from episode 46. If you don't recall, that was the all basis issue, spotlighting the Justice League's secret sanctuary with my guest host Mike Peacock, then Teen Titans Tower with Greg Arujo, and the Legion of Superheroes Clubhouse with Martin Gray. Last episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from Alan Middleton, Ange, Between the Pages, Brett Harris, Cindy Womack, Codeman, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections... Dan at Dinosaur No one Danica Horton, Daniel R. Budnick, DS and RS, Eli, Film and Water Podcast, Fire and Water Network, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Heather M., Jeffrey Brown, Jim Ball, Keith G. Baker, The Longbox Crusade, Luke Dobb, Martin Gray, Pod Dylan, World Spine Podcast, Sean at Sergey Bamba, Ciscoid, Stephen Bird, Too Dangerous, Treasury Comics, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Waiting for Doom, Willie Yarbrough, and Zavisha. Over on Facebook, we got new likes and shares from Aaron Moss, Abel Padilla, Al Sedano, Beware of Monsters Podcast, Billy Lacasse, Chris Franklin, Clinton Robinson, Coffee and Comics Blog, Daniel Budnick, David Fiore, David Foster, DeBache, D. Huntsman, Derek Crabb, The Fire and Water Podcast Network, Gotham Shioran, Gene Hendricks, G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast, Gord Tolton, Greg Arugeo, Greg Barr, Head Speaks, The Headcast Network, Jared West, Jay Jones, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Jonathan Brown, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, Kevin Barrett, the Legion of Super Bloggers, Leslie Trigg III, the Longbox Crusade, Mark Beltran. Martin Gray, Max Romero, Mike Gillis, Mike Peacock, Neil Patterson, Neil Whitney, Nicholas Prom, Ali Almeida, Pat Sampson, Robert Guy, Rob Kelly, Rob Williams, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Ross, Sean Walsh, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, The Irredeemable Shag, Silver and Gold Podcast, The Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, Steven Bird, Task Force X, Thomas Falvey, Tim Trevet. Tim Wallace, Trevor Owen Williams, Van Z, and Vinnie the II. For maybe the first time ever, I got a lot of compliments on the music selections on last episode, especially the Calvin Harris track Mary Making at My Place. Rob Kelly, Sean Walsh, and Van Z all said they enjoyed hearing that song for the first time. Hey, I am happy to introduce some new music to potential fans. Anyway, if I forgot anyone who promoted the show on Facebook or Twitter, I apologize for that oversight. Please, just let me know and I will be sure to mention you on the next episode. Alright, then let's head on over to the comments left at the Fire and Water website, which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first comment came from Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast. I laughed at the idea of architects browsing podcasts and checking this episode out. They're getting some great guest stars if they do. Uh, And on a similar topic, but jumping way down to the last comment on the site, uh, Chris Lewis said, congratulations on another excellent episode of the Architectural Digest podcast. I kind of love that idea. I want to start a new show called the Flying Buttress podcast. Uh, Anyway, I do agree with Paul's comment about the great guest stars, and Paul also said that he treasured issue 46, possibly his favorite book in the series. Diablo Frank of the DC Bloodlines and Marvel Superheroes podcast said, I thought for sure the Cribs episode would come in under 90 minutes. Sigh. Damn it, if I had thought of that before, I would have used the music from MTV Cribs and done the whole theme with in the last episode. Oh, missed opportunities. Frank went on to say, as much as I love the iconic Hall of Justice, Superfriends is not my primary frame of reference for the Justice League. A stately headquarters in a major metropolis is two Avengers for me, and I think space is the place for the League. I like both the satellite and the watchtower, with each having its pros and cons. I think the Secret Sanctuary was actually the League's least interesting base. In the Silver Age, Martian Manhunter also had a secret mountain lair where he kept his computer. And Zook, so I like to think he just built it out for the League. I think the Doom Patrol took that place over for a bit as referenced during the Breakdowns arc when Justice League International briefly returned there after the UN revoked their charter. The bunker was awesome, and you both trying to slum shame the Detroit League is noted with all due disdain. And Mike Gillis from Radio vs. the Martians added to Frank's comment, saying, The Giffen-era Justice League were based out of the cave when the series launched, until they got international status in issue 7. After that, they still owned the place and rented it out to the Doom Patrol, which is probably why Grant Morrison was chosen to write this story. Getting back to Frank, he went on to comment on the Titan's Tower story, Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the brief, underwhelming reteaming of Marv Wolfman and George Perez was either done or wrapping up by this point, which was followed by the book drifting out of view again. Sean Walsh responded to that, This Secret Origins issue actually came out the same month as Perez's last plotted issue of New Titans, number 61, the fourth part of A Lonely Place of Dying. Then Frank talked about how the Who Is Wonder Girl story was a convoluted and not very good mess, and how George Perez's rebooted Wonder Woman unintentionally pulled a hawk world by rendering Donna Troy toxic for years, possibly to this very day. On the subject of Cyborg, Frank said, My main issue with Vic Stone, beyond his being boring and not exhibiting any great intelligence for the son of two brilliant scientists who was empowered by advanced technology, is that he's Ben Grimm without the personality. They were both turned into monsters by science gone wrong, placed in a distressing position by big brains close to them that they erroneously trusted to keep them safe. They're each the short-tempered, rough-necked strongman of the group who found love from attractive white women who were willing to look past their disabilities thanks to their own close association with handicaps. Both have best friends who are the immature pests that needle them constantly. The main difference is that Ben smokes stogies and plays cards and speaks with a delightful New York accent, and was the key player in hundreds of great comic stories while serving as Spider-Man's alternate for every man who somehow knows everyone in the universe. While Cyborg only gets played check a box. Most of my friends into my late teens were black, but none of them bought New Teen Titans or held up Cyborg as one of their heroes. Marvel was legitimately inclusive and published solo titles with their black characters. Cyborg was a background player in one title that was popular for about five years, plus some minor appearances on the Superpowers cartoon that spawned his one mass market action figure. I don't think Cyborg was ever all that popular himself, and if he was, DC did him a disservice in not taking advantage of it before that moment came and went. In my experience, Cyborg rates well behind Stalker and Roadblock, much less Luke Cage, Black Panther, Storm, Blade, and on and on and on. Hey, shout out to some of my favorite G.I. Joe's, Stalker and Roadblock. Frank continues, As you fellows touched on, I think the path to Cyborg's elevation is not through incorporating a boom tube or making him the ultimate Wi-Fi hotspot, but through his relationship with his father and expansion of his personality. Silas Stone is arguably a greater cybernetic engineer than Tony Stark was a mechanical one. Silas figured out how to intermingle living organic matter with robotics encompassing at least half of a human body in the 20th century without using any extraterrestrial technology or resources beyond Star Labs. That's vastly more impressive than boot jets and a magnet keeping shrapnel from digging deeper into a heart. Uh, For the next part, Frank references Hank Henshaw when he means Hank Haywood. It's an understandable flub. Frank probably has Hank Henshaw on the brain because, while he was the cyborg Superman in comics, he's the Martian Manhunter on the Supergirl TV show, and also he's played by actor David Harewood. So much alliteration in these names. Anyway, Frank says, The Hank Haywood version of Steel was a more realistic and tragic take on the origin of the shield, and I think Jerry Conway gave that character a great story engine without having enough fuel to run it. I'd salvage the best parts of the Haywoods, the Detroit setting, the bunker, Moses Gunn, and especially the generational conflict, and merge it with the Stones' chilling pragmatic brains versus altruistic emotional brawn. Vic is a good man with skills and experience that make him the most effective cybernetic hero, but he should need his old man to maintain his life-slash-tech and create compromises-slash-complications. Borrow a page from the Firestorm playbook with Silas as the disembodied voice in Vic's robot ear. Silas needs a capable agent to implement his science foo, but his son is a conscientious actor with whom he has a contentious relationship, and often they're at cross-purposes. Killing Silas off and retroactively sainting Silas removed Vic's best option for dramatic tension. He needs and wants to love a father he can't trust, who often earns his contempt. It also motivates Vic to become a central figure in Black DC. On the outs with his old man, Cyborg must turn to John Henry Irons and Jefferson Pierce to rework his armor. But will even their combined abilities be enough to halt the rampage of the African thunder god Shango? Ooh, Natasha Irons as an ongoing supporting character and Vixen as a mentor-slash-crush object? Take my money. I like the idea. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, I always try to guess the music for the episodes. Wondered if Sugar Walls by Sheena Easton was on the docket. Well, this led to a series of follow-up comments from Rob Kelly, Chris Franklin, Martin Gray, and Diablo Frank about that song. And all I can ask is why you thought I'd use sugar walls for this episode. I know some of my soundtrack selections can be a little out of left field, but that song is so unambiguously not about walls. That one kind of boggled my mind, but it's all good because Ange and I share a love for the soundtrack to singles, so it's okay. Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks podcast and YouTube channel said, The episode of real Ghostbusters that Mike refers to is called Citizen Ghost, and it's one of the best of the series. It covers not only why the uniforms were different on the show, but the rebuilding of the destroyed firehouse, why the containment unit is so much bigger, and most importantly, why Slimer is suddenly their live-in mascot. It's a better sequel to the original film than Ghostbusters 2 was, I'll tell you that. Sean Walsh said, Before listening to the episode, I felt sort of weird thinking that this might be my favorite issue of Secret Origins. Of all the original issues I used to have, this was the only one I ever kept. Now I'm more confident than ever that I'm not alone in that belief. Almost everything about this issue worked for me. First off, the cover. Yes, I liked that cover. I was technically a Marvel boy before I was a DC kid, so Elliot Brown's cover was a wonderful throwback to his Marvel handbook schematics, the sort of thing that made mine Marvel back in the day. The notes on the bottom were a cute way to promote the stories within, too. As I said last episode, the cover does nothing for me. Uh, I think it's dull, unattractive. But that doesn't mean it's the worst cover of the series, and I'll tell you what the worst cover was on the final episode of this podcast. Uh, Sean went on to praise the Morrison and Swan story about the Justice League Secret Sanctuary. After that, he says, I'll skip ahead past the uneventful but readable Titan's Tale, except to note that Vince Girano's simpler artwork here is infinitely preferable to what it became during his terrible, jagged, inked days in 1990s DC. Of the Legion Clubhouse story, Sean said, It called back to those simpler days of keeping the stories quick and to the point, yet conveying all the emotion necessary, and then some, to make you care about a brand new someone who, it turns out, was there the entire time. Rob Kelly from Pod Dylan and the Film and Water podcast said, Stop the presses. I loved the Legion of Superheroes story. I think this story deserves to be in the running for any top 10 secret origin stories list you will no doubt be compiling when all of this is over. I don't know if it will be a top 10 list, but there will definitely be some best of and worst of lists on the final episode of this podcast, yes. Then Rob said, I wish I had thought of it at the time. I would have pitched myself to talk about this one. It's so good. But Martin did a terrific job. His generally sunny podcasting demeanor a good match for the material. Nice job, fellas. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast came to the defense of Kurt Swan, which shouldn't surprise anyone. And by the way, if I sounded cynical about Swan last episode, that was not my intention. What I meant was, because DC removed Kurt Swan from the Superman titles after Crisis, I unconsciously associate Swan of this era with being over the hill and past his prime. That's a perception that I recognize is not based on the actual quality of his work. I thought his work on these two stories last issue and the led story in this issue were terrific. Now, how much of the art is his pencils as opposed to the various inkers? That's debatable, but I still like the look of all three stories. Anyway, back to Chris's defense. Kurt Swan never missed a beat. Just look at Eddie Zeno's Swan biography. It's chock-full of his pencils from throughout his career, and his pencils from the Silver Age on are consistently excellent. Yes, the mechanics of his storytelling may have been too subdued for many this late in the Bronze Age, but Swan was ahead of his time in his natural presentation and body language. It's the type of stuff that artists like Mike Allred get praised for nowadays. Chris added, I like the hook of the JLA story. I remember seeing an episode of In Search Of with my dad, focusing on hauntings that postulated that some ghosts may actually be recordings of rock and rock-like materials recording and then playing back actual history. So when I read this origin for The Secret Sanctuary, I connected that to it, whether Morrison meant it to or not. I remember even telling my dad about this issue. This story does have a Gardner Fox vibe to it, but then much of Morrison's actual JLA run has a Fox on Shrooms feel. Chad Bokelman from the Lantern Cast and Action Comics Weekly podcast, which is not a weekly podcast, by the way, said... I've never thought of Cyborg as Frankenstein's monster but with tech. I suppose intellectually it occurred to me, but never in the way that it would lead to similar stories. I both love the idea and feel it conflicts with my idea of the character. To me, Vic has always been a character of near-annoying levels of optimism, so maybe my sample group from him is too small that I only experienced that version once or twice and now it's just my view of him. I haven't read much Cyborg or Teen Titans. Maybe there are far more stories of him being down on himself in his situation, but for me, he's an optimistic character, and that's inspiring given his situation. But can you tell a Frankenstein's monster story with an optimistic character? Isn't the point the heartbreaking tragedy? Chris responded to that, Victor was the stereotypical angry black man character in the very early issues of New Teen Titans, mostly because his dad turned him into a freak. Once they buried the hatchet, Wolfman and Perez actually had him grow and become a more positive character, which was very refreshing. Got a comment from Gord Tolton who said, At this point in time, I liken Secret Origins to a water drilling rig. It is possible for a drill bit to go right past the water stream into the subsoil and come up with dry dirt. It's not like there wasn't material to hit. Aquaman, Wonder Woman, a number of Golden Age characters that were in various stages of completion but never published, never got my Grey Morrow vigilante, dammit, and so many others worthy of a revisit. But with apes, headquarters, dead legionnaires, Chris KL99, Stanley and his monster, and now these monuments, two of which weren't even being used in current incarnations, was Mark Wade ever hitting the sand in these last few issues? And on that same subject, David Frenemy Gutierrez said last issue was better than I expected, but I still have to think we get this instead of a Wonder Woman or Aquaman origin? From my brief talk with Mark Wade, I got the impression that DC was so hands off on Secret Origins by this point that Wade was more or less producing the series for himself. Rather than doing tie-in issues or connecting the series to popular characters who are already in their own books like Wonder Woman and Aquaman, Wade just mined the old forgotten characters and tropes. I think he wanted to preserve as much of the Silver Age between genres DC properties as he could, not just for maintaining copyrights, but to preserve them in the collective consciousness. I love Aquaman and Wonder Woman, but those characters are never going to go away for long. But if we didn't get the secret origin of Stanley and his monster in issue 48, or Chris Kale 99 in 43, or Silent Knight in 49, then I might never have heard of those characters. So, I understand both sides. Uh, a series like this could be a remarkable showcase and a repository of Forgotten Glories and Z-List never-weres. But you're not going to make any money on the series that way, so ah, uh, you have to decide what you want. Moving on... Bradley Null said, It's official. The more I dislike the original comic, the more I love the Connected podcast. I loved this episode. Okay, thanks. Jimmy McGlinchey said, Excellent podcast, even though the subject matter was a bit iffy. I'm surprised they didn't do a one-page joke origin of the Justice League International embassies consisting of UN officials meeting realtors to obtain the embassies for the JLI. You know, that would have been funny. And it couldn't have been worse than the Titans Tower story, so... Picking up on the top five lists from recent episodes, Jimmy went on to post his top five Justice League headquarters 1. The JLA Watchtower, 2. Justice League of America Satellite, 3. The Secret Sanctuary, 4. Justice League Europe Embassy in Paris, and 5. The Justice League International's Castle in London. The Legion story, Jimmy said, sounded like it was the best from Ryan and Martin's retelling. Reading the early stories from Showcase Presents, I always felt like there must have been some TARDIS technology involved, as it was definitely bigger on the inside than the outside. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, thanks so much for having me on the show, Ryan. I had loads of fun, and it sounds as if Mike and Greg did too. Well. I don't know how much fun Greg Rugeot had, as Martin goes on to describe the Titans Tower story as the most boring thing ever. There are umpteen ways to get a story out of a building's creation, and all we got was it was built. Next we get a comment from Michelle Fifa, who came to defend Vince Giorano. He said, Girano had a similar style to Kyle Baker. Open, clean, brisk. I don't see it as lazy at all. The actual drawing isn't sloppy or inaccurate. Even in its simplicity, every line looks measured, every expression thoughtful. He later changed his style very decisively to fit the times ridiculous proportions, jagged inking lines, insane character designs. It was almost a completely different person drawing those Batman comics. I very much like both styles. Between Trevor Von Eden and Nolan's Clayface cover, to this issue's Freeman inking Swan and the Giorano criticism, this seems to be the place for me to agree to disagree with. It's nothing deep, I just think our values are way different. But hey, we'll always have our love for Ty Templeton to keep us together. Well said, Michelle. Honest disagreements are fine. They are encouraged on this podcast, in fact. Otherwise, what would we do with Frank? Jeff Nettleton wrote in saying... My true architectural love lies with the Hall of Justice. You can't beat Art Deco for housing the ultimate conglomeration of heroes. The satellite is a sentimental favorite since that is my era of Justice League of America. My only problem is that the interiors never quite lived up to the exteriors. Nothing had the character of the Batcave in DC apart from the Fortress of Solitude. Titan's Tower probably makes architects and structural engineers laugh hysterically. The two wings of the T would have to be ornamental. You'd have a heck of a time making that structurally sound. I almost wonder if Wolfman and Paris got loopy while watching It's a Mad, 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 Mad World and fixated on a big T. Uh, then Jeff listed his favorite headquarters and layers from DC and Marvel. The Hall of Justice, the JLA satellite, the SHIELD helicarrier. Good one the 1970s Legion headquarters, Project Pegasus, the Baxter Building, Titan's Tower, and Blackhawk Island. And Frank popped back in to add, While extolling the virtues of Blackhawks last time, I somehow managed to forget about Blackhawk Island being one of the coolest superbases ever. It makes more sense than most for a start. Challenger's Mountain also needs some love. Agreed. Uh, like I think I said last time, either of those stories would have been happy substitutes for the Titan's Tower one. And the last comment came from Doug Zavisha from Tales of My Greatest Strange Adventures and the Waiting for Doom companion blog My Greatest Adventure 80. Doug said, I know for a fact that when I saw this cover on the stands in my youth, I passed it up. Hard. Like walked right by it and didn't even flip through it. So I never knew the treasures inside, and I still don't, at least not firsthand. This show, if nothing else, has really sparked the secondary market for these issues, and this one and 48 are probably among the hardest to find offline. I searched no fewer than three shops and one convention before tripping across it in a shop while looking for other issues of the series. That's right, I would have been content to pass this one up and just buy 48, but since fate put it in my hand that one day I decided to buy it. I might have to give this a read soon. Thanks for covering this comic so well. Well, Doug, thank you for the compliment. Thank you, everyone who wrote in or left feedback, be it on the comments section of the website or by sharing and retweeting on social media. Your support of this podcast is truly, greatly appreciated and it makes me feel like I've accomplished something, even if it's a little thing with this show. And I know I'm not always the best when it comes to reciprocating that support, so I wanted to take a moment to praise some of the other podcasts that I've been listening to lately. Now, I listen to a lot of shows. Almost all of my free time is spent on recording or editing my podcasts or listening to other people's. Of course, it's easy to praise all of the shows coming out of the Fire and Water Network. I am constantly impressed with and inspired by the work that my friends are doing. As you probably know, last week saw the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. The original series debuted on September 8th, 1966, and to honor that milestone, the Fire and Water Network launched a brand new show called Gimme That Star Trek. If that name sounds a little familiar, it's because Siskoid designed the show to be a kind of companion to my show, Give Me Those Star Wars. And if the first episode is any indication, he'll blow by my show in no time. Ciscoid uh, and his guest Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Podcasts, they did an amazing job on the first episode, with very little prep time by the way, but you'd never know that because they're both great podcasters and their passion for Trek is palpable. Uh, On the topic of Star Trek's 50th anniversary, Chris and Cindy Franklin also released a tribute episode on the Supermates podcast. It's episode 59, and it's all about their favorite Star Trek memories. And they collected memories and anecdotes from all of us on the Fire & Water Network, as well as others like Gene Hendricks, I said, Andy Leyland, and Paul Spataro. It's a great episode, such a loving homage. You should check that out now if you haven't already. Uh, Speaking of Paul Spataro, he recently started up a new film review podcast called Is It Jaws, where he compares movies to the classic film, Jaws. The first episode of that show, which was not meant to be the first episode, but it was the most timely, uh, the first episode featured Paul, Chris Honeywell, Chris Franklin, and I reviewing Star Trek Beyond. Check out that new show, Is It Jaws? It's not as good of a film review podcast as Rob's Film and Water, I'm contractually obligated to say that, but it's still a good show. Darren and Ruth Sutherland also released a Trek-themed episode on their Trekker Talk podcast. Now, Trekker Talk is not actually about Star Trek. It's their fan podcast devoted to Ron Randall's Trekker comic. But because Randall contributed to the Star Trek comic, they did their own Star Trek Celebration episode. Check that one out. Uh, Not Star Trek, but Star Wars related the aforementioned Gene Hendricks on episode 21 of the Hammer podcasts. Gene and Scott Rifen talked about the Skywalker family tree. Just kind of a roving conversation, but it was a blast to listen to, even, I should say, especially when they go off on weird tangents and sidebars. It's hilarious. Uh, Kyle Benning's Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour episode, which I wish he would update more regularly, by the way. Uh, Back on episode six, he did a spotlight of Jerry Ordway's contribution to both characters. Pretty simple idea, but a great episode talking about two beloved characters and one of their greatest creative talents. Check that out. Ah, what else? Uh, God, I know I'm missing something. Oh. A couple of podcasts talked about The Killing Joke in regards to both the original comic and the recent animated movie. Listen to recent episodes of Michael Bailey's Views from the Long Box with guest host Andy Leyland and Frank's DC Bloodlines podcast with the Rolled Spine Guys. Very different shows with very different analyses of The Killing Joke, but both entertaining. Uh, also, Nathaniel Wayne reviewed the movie on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel. There are lots of other podcasts that are doing great work right now. I can't list all of them. I'll try to mention some more in the last couple of episodes. But if you're doing a show, keep it up. You're doing great work, everybody. As for what you can expect from me in the near future, there are three more issues of Secret Origins to cover. There will be four more episodes of the Secret Origins podcast. After wrapping up issue 50, I'm going to release what I call a CODA episode. It will allow me to address the listener feedback from episode 50, I'll review one final secret origin story with one final guest, and I will share some feelings and reflections about the comic and the podcast and this whole experience, assuming I don't break down in the fetal position and cry. After Secret Origins, there are a number of projects coming up, including one that I have been sitting on since the week that Secret Origins Episode 1 came out. But the first one, out of the gate, and if you've been following us on Facebook and Twitter, you've seen a lot of teasers for this, I'm launching a horror anthology podcast on the Fire & Water Network. The title is It's Midnight the Podcasting Hour, an homage to the old DC comic The Witching Hour, and it's going to cover multiple DC horror comics and characters on a set rotation. Those characters include Swamp Thing, Deadman, and The Spectre to start, with other characters possibly showing up later. Now, unlike the classic DC horror anthologies, I am not going to cover each of those characters on every single episode, after Secret Origins, I do not want to do a three hour podcast for a long, long time. At the beginning, there will be five regular features on the rotation. The first episode, which will drop on Monday, October 31st, Happy Halloween, will be an introduction to the series and will feature Rob Kelly and I reviewing one of our favorite one off horror stories. Episode two will come out two weeks later. The show will be bi weekly, not weekly. Episode 2 will be the first Swamp Thing episode. The Swamp Thing series within the series will be hosted by me and Ben Avery from Comic Book Time Machine and the Welcome to Level 7 podcast. At the start, at least, the Swamp Thing feature will be an index show. On episode 2, we will cover the first Swamp Thing story from House of Secrets number 92. After that, the Swamp Thing episodes will pick up with the original Swamp Thing series by Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson. Two weeks after that, episode three will be the first Deadman episode, hosted by me and Doug Zavisha. Like Ben on the Swamp Thing episodes, Doug will be my regular co-host on the Deadman episodes, which is not to say we won't occasionally, you know, bring on other guests from time to time. The Deadman episodes will also be in the index format, at least until we wrap up the first run in Strange Adventures. After that, who knows? We might bounce around to different eras, or we might put Deadman on hiatus and replace him with Madame Xanadu or I, Vampire or something. We'll have to wait and see how that goes. The fourth episode in the rotation will be Paul Hicks, better known to many of you as Flanger, uh, and I reviewing the original Night Force by Marv Wolfman and Gene Colin. We're going to start with the preview story that appeared in New Teen Titans number 21 and then chronicle the 14-issue series one episode at a time. I'm really excited for this. If you like Mission Impossible, The Supernatural, and or Australia, you definitely want to check out these shows. The fifth feature, then, is The Spectre. This series will spotlight the 1970 stories of The Spectre created by Michael Fleischer and Jim Aparo that originally ran in Adventure Comics and The Wrath of the Spectre. This series won't have a regular co-host, but rotating guests. That include the irredeemable Shag, Rob Kelly, Kyle Benning, Mike Gillis, David Gutierrez, Nathaniel Wayne, and maybe some others. And then we get to the sixth episode, which brings us back to the top of the rotation. And those episodes are going to be random horror stories Called from the pages of House of Mystery, House of Secrets, Ghosts, Unexpected, Secrets of the Haunted House, and maybe the occasional Phantom Stranger story. This too will feature a changing roster of guests, and if you want to be on one of these episodes, let me know. I would love to have as many guests as possible. So, it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Five rotating features released bi-weekly. That means, ideally, 26 episodes a year, five of them Swamp Thing, five of them Dead Man, five Night Force, five Spectre, and six random horror stories. I am really excited for these comics, these characters, these co-hosts. I think the show is going to be great when it comes out, which again is on Halloween. However, You don't have to wait until October 31st to celebrate great horror stories, because Chris and Cindy Franklin have already started the House of Frankenstein 2016 on the Supermates podcast. I love this show. The latest episode reviews the classic universal picture House of Frankenstein, along with two crazy Superman stories from the Jack Kirby era of Jimmy Olsen. Whew, that is a lot to listen to. I should probably bring this episode to a close. One more time, thank you everyone who listens to the show, thank you to those of you who support us on social media or leave comments or iTunes reviews, and big thanks to my guests on this episode. It was great talking to Tim Wallace and Dr. Ange one more time, and it was a treat recording with Russell Burbage for the first time. Remember, I want to see some top three Legionnaire lists from you guys, and I will accept any Legionnaire that you can make a case for. So that includes the Legion of Subs and, of course, Superboy and Supergirl. Uh, I definitely know that I'm already going to change my list to include Chlorophyll Kid. Next episode will include four stories. Stanley and his Monster, Rex the Wonder Dog, the Trigger Twins, and a Mr. Ambush Bug. You know that one's going to be wild. Until then... Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use, and since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.
4: When you're sad and when you're lonely, and you haven't got a friend, just remember secret falls down and does not mean just remember that death is not not the end not the end not the end just remember The tree of life is growing where the spirit never dies And the bright light of salvation shines in darkness